0: Look who
1: is podcasting. Nice. Yeah, thanks for coming, though. I oh, no worries, bro. Crazy happy, fri- big- happy Friday. Happy Friday. Yeah. Crazy big day. Yeah. So, top of the show. Let
2: everybody know I'm a little hungover today. Yeah. And I was uh, <laughs> yeah. a little worse for wear today, but I'm here. And you've and, had uh,
1: a... What, what time did you start work today?
2: Nine. It's a nine-hour nine shift, yeah. Oh, And so. you
1: said traffic was terrible getting here as well. And that
2: too. So, it's been, it's been a day.
1: So, thank you for coming.
2: Oh, no bro. Always good to talk movies. Yeah. And um, I'm excited to get into these two. Thank you. On yeah. top of the show, I just want to say thank you for picking these two. Ooh. Both of these movies I'd never seen before. Oh, um, awesome. Yeah. So, I'm very... Uh, I loved both of them a lot. Um, yeah. I'd seen Cape Fear, the 1991 Scorsese remake. Yeah. But I'd never seen the original. Uh, so, yeah, I uh, was pleasantly surprised. With that one and uh, Night of the Hunter. Oof. I will get into that very shortly. We will. But,
1: man, what a movie. Oh, what a movie. Well, maybe we should just jump right into it. Yeah. Yeah, why not? So, um, this is Look Who's Podcasting. And, uh, yeah, today we are doing a Robert Mitchum double. We're doing Night of the Hunter from 1955 and Cape Fear from 1961? 62? 62. 62. We'll fact check that later. Yeah, but yeah, we're gonna, we are going to start off with Night of the Hunter.
0: Is only dream. So,
1: dream so, Night of the Hunter, yeah, 1955. It's directed by Charles Lawton. This is the only film he ever made.
2: Yeah, right. Oh, what a shame.
1: Yeah, real shame, because it's incredible. We'll we'll talk about that later, like, potentially why it was the only film that he had made. But it's starring Robert Mitchum as the main sort of villain of this one. Mm-hmm. We've got Lillian Gish and Shelley Winters as well. And, yeah, so, for this one, just to give you that plot synopsis, Robert Mitchum is, I guess he's a serial killer, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he is posing as a preacher-like figure. And he's got like an extremely warped sense of justice. He -hmm. believes he's doing it, um, you know, uh, for God, essentially committing the crimes that he's doing. And he gets wind of a like $10,000 in stolen bank loot while sharing a cell with this guy. This guy is actually the father of two young kids. And the father gives just enough information up to Robert Mitchum's evil character to have Robert Mitchum figure out where... And what he needs to do to, to get his hands on this bank loop. Mm-hmm. And that's what kicks off this film. Yeah, I, thanks so much for, for agreeing to do this one. Because I've been wanting to talk about this movie for a long time. It feels like it's a long time coming. All right. Yep. Uh, but what, what did you think of it? Yeah, we've got an idea before. But yeah, tell me what yeah, you well, think. Yeah, I well, I'll
2: will say quickly to add to that synopsis. It's set during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Father wanted to sort of set his family up, and you know they were on going through difficult times, as a lot of people were in the, during the Great Depression and yeah. uh, in the twenties.
1: Yeah, he's not like a bad guy, Robin. No, a exactly. He's kind of doing what he needs to do, but you know he did get himself executed in the end. So uh, not the best parenting move
2: <laughs> that's true um, but it was you know desperate times called desperate measures type yeah. situation
1: so yeah i mean you can't really rob a bank these days you can't even rob a 7-eleven everything is cashless it's all <laughs> Good like point. Uh, yeah. you know um fpos yeah unless you can figure out a way to rob the fpos machines it's like
2: you know cybercrime or something right cybercrime unless you're like a yeah, hacker yeah. or
1: something nigerian prince yes well yeah <laughs> that's prince true cash <clears throat> to him um uh-huh. that'll be a fun remake if they uh, brought that in but no, yeah, tell me, what did you think?
2: Yeah, I really like this movie. Um yeah. uh Robert Mitchum is a new favourite actor of mine, I think. He's fantastic, not just in this, but also in Cape Fear, which we'll get to soon. Oh, he's amazing. Um isn't he? This movie is a oh, wow. It's it's a visual delight. Yeah. It's uh, actor's delight. I think all the cast are fantastic, but especially the aforementioned Robert Mitchum is yeah. just unsettling and creepy and his character is so manipulating, and yeah. just—it's all very how
1: uh,
2: do I don't describe it? Tantalizing. I don't know. It's very like captiv. It's very captivating cinema.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, it really draws you in with like the striking yes. photography of the film. So it's it's sort of like inspired by noir in its use of shadows, mm-hmm. but it's also like this movie is really weird. Like, what did you think of? Just the initial vibe that you get from this movie. When the movie starts up, it's five five floating faces yeah, with this black background. You've got these five kids' faces floating. And it's kind of set up like someone is telling you a children's story. Yeah. And, and it's sort of, I think it's the Lillian Gish character's voice saying, now remember what I told you children about how, you know, um, the sheep and the wolf and all these sort of, fable sort of stories and it's just these kids floating faces listening Mm -hmm. to this story.
3: Remember, children, how I told you last Sunday about the good Lord going up into the mountain and talking to the people? And how he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And how he said that King Solomon in all his glory was not as beautiful as the lilies of the field. And I know you won't forget judge not, lest she be judged, because I explained that to you. And Then the good Lord went on to say, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves.
1: And right away, like, just that vibe of, like, what is this movie? What am I getting myself into? Like, you hear that Night of the Hunter is one of the great films of its time, and even today it holds up really well, to be honest. It does, yeah. yeah, what, What did you think? Like, what were your impressions when you first turned it on and. This is the first thing that you see.
2: Well, yeah, I mean it's very surreal
1: yeah. at times,
2: uh, and very nightmarish. Uh, fairy yeah. ta- fairy tale is a great description. I think it's very uh, evocative yeah. of, of sort of like a fairy tale. It's also very you were saying film noir, but it's also evocative of very like a German expressionist film oh, cinema yeah. like you know gave me a bit of um caligari caligari thank you that's the film yeah cabinet caligari uh yeah. vibes which i love all love that movie we've talked about that in the past we have off, off, yeah off air
1: um on our maybe an archived not to be heard episode. <laughs> we may have yes
2: but yeah so i love that movie and so that was kind of cool to see some of that
1: yeah or- elements of that and all the use of silhouettes yes and just the the lighting maybe you can talk more about the lighting later on when we talk about like the production values more in depth it's so amazing like the way Mm -hmm. the film visually looks is stunning yeah and like i was sort of saying there like the vibe of the film is also the thing that really caught me off guard right off the bat oh my god yeah yeah so those floating faces and then You think like, okay, we're setting ourselves up for, you know, this is 1955. So, you're not expecting the film to be maybe too scary Mm -hmm. or too violent or even just alluding to violence too much. But the first thing that you get after these floating kids faces is like this shot from above, like this bird's eye view, slowly like zooming into this landscape and this location and this open, like, maybe, I think it's like an open cellar door kind of thing. And these kids poking their head inside. And you later find out they've just found a dead body. And it's alluded that Robert Mitchum's character has killed this person. This is... The kids are finding one of his victims.
2: Yeah. I remember saying to my partner, like, wow, that's a very impressive crane shot for yeah. <laughs> 1950s. There's yeah. a lot of things about this that are very, um, well, one, shocking, yes, but also just very contemporary like yeah it's not as melodramatic as i was expecting for a film from the 1950s no and there's a lot of um camera movement and you know obviously that things like lighting and stuff is evocative of that era
1: yeah and that german expressionistic stuff stuff
2: as well yeah so yeah films from the 20s and 30s and 40s yeah but um there's a lot of other things that other elements to it that came off very modern cinema as well
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So like, this is a big influence on, like, the Coen brothers. Exactly, yeah. William Friedkin, too. Like, a lot of filmmakers um, have talked about this film. That One of the great things about this movie is just the wealth of content on YouTube. Uh, you can watch behind-the-scenes stuff of Charles Lawton directing. There's a whole um, gang of fun stuff, uh, people talking about this movie on YouTube. Yeah, right. Um, and, yeah, you'll see all of that, how it's influenced other films and other genres and yeah awesome stuff one of the things that we popped in our uh, little dossier Mm -hmm. uh, was Guillermo del Toro talking about this film as an influence on him yes and that was really interesting
2: that was very interesting I liked how much it not only influenced him as a filmmaker but also just as a uh, an immigrant yeah I thought that was a nice perspective that I hadn't thought of yeah, absolutely. That, you know that he would because uh, I didn't realize that Charles Lawton was also obviously a yeah. immigrant to America, and so they both had that sort of Hollywood similar, experience. similar yeah exactly and similar perspective of, yeah. of, of an outsider to Hollywood and you know and Lawton came to America and like another rotund, not very
3: beautiful man, Alfred Hitchcock with Shadow of a Doubt, they both tapped into the shadow side of America. Hitchcock with the white picket fence little town in shadow of a doubt was able to see the the lurking shadow around the corner in uncle charlie which was joseph cotton and Lafton was able to look at the southern gothic and
2: finding this preacher that sang hymns and find the menace and the horror in those spiritual tunes so you obviously picked this movie this week yeah what was your experience with Night of the Hunter? So, you've obviously watched this before.
1: Yeah, I saw it when I was younger. And it was right. one of those movies that I just didn't appreciate. Um, mm-hmm. And I think when you're a kid and you're watching black and white movies, especially, you're tuning a lot out. But what I remember as a kid was just how scary it still was. Yeah. Was kind of like, do you ever remember Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Sure, yeah. And there was that character that was like going to... Offer kids lollies and snatch them like the Kid Snatcher. (laughs) Yep. Movies that that were for kids, but they had these, like, really intense characters. Yeah, okay. This was one of those movies for me, um, and I didn't see it again for a long, long time. But then with, like, you know, the internet and being, Mm -hmm. like, a movie buff and seeing the movie's name pop up over and over again, you're like, you know what, I should really give that another go. And it was like watching it again for the first time. Because the- some of the sequences in this film, just in terms of, like, we've already, you know, talking about the photography and the lighting and the shadows and um is super impressive. It's beautiful just to look at. It. I mean, I feel bad if anyone hasn't seen this film yet mm-hmm. because, you know, well, it's it's going to be a fun treat. You get to go away and, and watch it. And maybe not for everybody, but if you are at all interested in beautiful cinematography, mm-hmm. um, awesome, like, weird, creepy. Is it a kid's film? Is it a family film? Is it a murderous rampage film, like it's strange yeah. but um, if you're a fan of that kind of genre mishmash and beautiful photography jump right in, um, but no apologies Jimmy, I'm just meandering <laughs> you're okay uh, but no, the when I revisited it I absolutely loved it, yeah nice and um, I've rewatched it like twice a year for the yeah, last wow. three or four years oh cool, okay. I just find myself being drawn to it, wanting to pop it on, there's not really much else like it,
2: yeah No, I can see that, yeah
1: So, this movie is actually um, based on a novel. Yeah. And the novel is actually based on the true story of this one guy back in the day named Harry Powers. Uh, So, just reading here, he was hung in 1932 or hanged. Do you say hanged or do you say hung? I don't know. I mean, hung sounds a bit sexual, right? Yeah, it sounds a bit PG. (laughs) Sexual references, <laughs> if you're right. I, I guess, yeah, he was hanged in 1932 uh-huh. for the murder of two widows and three children in Clarksburg, West Virginia. Um, so, yeah, that's the, the true story of this mm-hmm. of this guy going and doing this. They wrote a novel about him. And the film is based on that novel. And obviously, like, and Charles and- Lawton has taken some real creative liberties with- how the story progresses and... totally, but
2: also the novel also talks of liberties too. Because I'm not sure if you're going to mention it. I don't know. I don't want to cut you out, but Go for it. the uh, from what I heard was that the the original person, what was his name? Harry Powers. Harry Powers. Harry Powers was a uh... international man of mystery. <laughs> I I was, know, right? It does <laughs> sound like Austin Powers. Austin Powers is a step brother or something. <laughs> um, Harry, good old Harry Powers. Yeah, uh, he um was. Um, not a preacher man So the okay. author had a good friend that he grew up with Whose yeah. um, I believe father was a preacher And so he was a son of a preacher man Oh wow I Like that song And song. and he, but his uh, father was abusive And used to like uh, be very violent towards him And wow. lived in this very oppressive uh, household Yeah And so he liked that Concept of this wolf in sheep's clothing type figure yeah. Who's, you know, everyone sees as this godly man But he's actually this horrible human being inside
1: Absolute prick uh, Exactly It went behind the scenes So
2: he wrote "Wow, Harry Powers to be a preacher Even though he wasn't actually He was just
1: like a businessman Yeah Type figure Wow, oh that's really interesting Yeah, I didn't know Yeah that. And and the whole it was really controversial that this character would be portrayed as this religious character. Yeah. So I don't know if they're trying to make him seem like he is a preacher or just a heavily religious person.
2: Yeah, good point. I I mean, yeah, I always wondered whether he actually believed it or not, or whether it was just a ruse to try to
1: his character does believe that he's talking to God, or maybe that he's just kept up that act for so long. That it's just become, you know, part of his psychosis. True, yeah.
2: Either way, it's a fantastic character, mm. and I love the whole concept of that. It's just something that I find, I don't know, just a, a great idea and a well realized concept. And and it talks about uh,
1: it. It just gives this movie this whole another level to it. Yeah, it, it doesn't just become about a creepy stalker character manipulating people and going after money and killing women and children, it becomes about this whole other thing that we'll talk about later when we discuss the themes and the interpretation of the movie. Uh, So, I'm I'm glad that you brought that up because, yeah, I didn't know that. That's really awesome that that's where that inspiration came from to turn him into a a, a godlike, preacher-like character. But, yeah, people had a real problem with that when it was coming out. So, I think they softened on him being... uh, He would have been like a real preacher initially, and I think they kind of adjusted it so that he would just be more of a heavily religious person
2: well i also wonder whether um i, I haven't read the uh the book uh but i wonder i mean obviously i had not even seen the film until last week so uh i also wonder whether um the i can't remember her name but we'll get to her later but the character who helps the kids Was in the film.
1: I know her her name is Rachel Cooper in the film, but I know I always refer to her as Lillian Gish. Of course, Lillian Gish's character. Yeah. yeah.
2: So uh, Rachel Cooper. I wonder if her character was as religious in the original or not. Yeah. Because I wonder if that was also something they brought in to help kind of soften to uh, be that binary opposite. Exactly. To to be kind of a bit like, oh, you know, not going to paint all. Religious figures Yeah As bad and You know two-faced And we'll have this other person here Who's the You know she
1: the yin and yang
2: Exactly I'm sure I'm sure it would have probably been that way I feel so It fits so well That I just I can't I'd be surprised if the original novel Didn't have that Character in it
1: But yeah, yeah, well, man, we really should have done some research. No, but um, it's but I I love that the idea that it's something Charles Lawton has introduced as a foreigner from you know talking about yeah, and commenting yeah. on socio-religious politics in the United States at that point in time, like in the mid fifties. Sure, yeah, I know it's set in the Depression era, but in the fifties during that time, I love that the idea that that's something he brought to the story that mm-hmm. then just elevated it into this next level like subtext yeah, not yeah. even subtext like it's it's just text it's text yeah but you can you but can also, really milk it.
2: also a lot of these things are relevant now absolutely i yeah. mean you know like i feel like especially in the in united states well should we just talk you about- know the religious right are always has a, yeah. a prevalent focus in the media For good reason. I think these are good topics and areas that are still relevant to discuss. People people doing things in the name of the Lord or whatever it might be, or their version of religion that are for personal gain or for personal. uh,
1: Plenty of people on early morning or late night, whatever it is, television that wants you to plant a seed of faith by donating money exactly. so they can right. jump on about, a private jet. Yeah, it's all
2: about, yeah, exactly, financial gain or, yeah. you know, and so this movie, it's like, wow, this movie really cuts to the core in a lot, in a lot of ways where it's about some of those things and to some of these really, I, don't know, I I loved it for that aspect of it.
1: Oh, uh, you're and right. Again, and yeah. again,
2: we'll talk more about it later, but I love that whole aspect of that.
1: Oh, you're right. You're so right. It it really does like cut to the bone of yes society in terms of what it's what the message is or you know, what the interpretation is and we'll we will get to that. I think it's it'll be good to sort of talk a bit through the film yes, as well. And yeah. um, um so let's let's have a look. I mean like as the film opens, like we said, we've got this beautiful like shot coming in on this location, finding this dead body, and then mm-hmm. you've got like Robert Mitchum driving in his car, talking to God.
3: Lord, I am tired. Sometimes I wonder if you really understand. Not that you mind the killings. Your book is full of killings. But there are things you do hate, Lord. Perfume smelling things. Lacy things. Things with curly hair.
1: And um, so, yeah, you get the impression, you know, he tells the audience as he's talking to God, he's like, oh, you know, I murdered these women for you, God. You know, he's got that mm-hmm. accent on. Yeah, yeah. That's and it's great. like, okay, so he's killing women that he deems as sinful. And you see him in like the strip parlor. Mm-hmm. And his, his knife, his switchblade, that's his weapon of choice. It's like popping out of his pocket like a like an erection. Yeah. You know? yeah. Which I thought was a beautiful little artistic flair there. Yeah, there's a lot of great <laughs> visual
2: storytelling in this movie. Oh, and, that's, yeah. and that's a good example of it.
1: Yeah. And that that switchblade comes back. I mean, just just to tangent off quickly, like talking about the weird tonal shifts of this film mm. before you know what you're getting into. You know, like just seeing him chasing the kids around. There's a, a scene where is it Johnny John, the young boy, young Pearl, boy. and John. yeah,
2: he's fantastic. By the way,
1: he's really good. Yeah, that's one of those YouTube videos you can watch. Is of is of Charles Lawton directing him and mm-hmm. like giving him the line deliveries and. And the way he's dealing with the child actors is really, really something else. Oh, really cool. Good. Okay. And, but just that, just seeing Robert Mitchum's character chasing the kids and pulling out a switchblade as he's chasing yeah. them, it's like, oh, fuck. Yeah, it, man. It, was, it was quite confronting um, for a film from the 50s, but it, that's just part of what makes the film, I don't want to say timeless, because you know that you're watching a film from the 50s, but it's just aged really well. Yeah. Yeah. still quite enjoyable. But, yeah, so he's talking to God. He's in the strip parlor. Um, and that's where we get a bit more of the backstory around this father figure who's gone to jail for robbing a bank. And mm-hmm. we get introduced to the young child children characters and their mother, played by Shelley Winters. Poor Shelley Winters. Man. Oh, my God. Or right. poor, the character that she plays. <laughs> yes, yes. What a tragic. Yeah. You know, tragic character. So, Robert Mitchum, his, his character is found out that there's some bank loot hidden away somewhere the one big clue that he has is from the executed father that rubbed the bank he says well my my boy knows where it is and then he finds out where the boy is so Robert Mitchum he's gonna go and he's gonna woo the the wife Shelley Winters into Mm -hmm. marrying him and he's going to convince the whole town that he's an honorable god-fearing man by playing out this little Love and hate speech with his hands. Yeah, that was interesting, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, and this is a famous scene and speech now that's been replicated in. Do the uh, right uh, thing. Do Spike, the right Spike thing. Spike Lee. Yeah. Yep, we've seen it in other spots too. It's popped up in uh, The Simpsons is one of the really big ones. Yeah. It even, it even popped up not long after in Cape Fear. Well, I don't know if the original Cape Fear had it, but definitely the '90s remake of Cape Fear yes, had the say they have love it. and hate tattoos. Yes. Yeah, um, but yeah, do the right thing. I forgot that they that he included. Uh, the, I'll tell you the story of mm-hmm. you know love of, and of Cain and, and, and yep. Cain, yeah, yep.
3: Would you like me to tell you the little story of right hand, left hand? The story of good and evil. H A T E. It was with this left hand that old brother Cain struck the blow that laid his brother low. L O V E. You see these fingers, dear hearts? These fingers have veins that run straight to the soul of man. The right hand, friends, the hand of love. Now watch and I'll show you the story of life.
2: I uh, forgot that they had it in there. Yeah. yeah it's a very great visual. Yeah. Having that the the tattoos of the love and hate. and yeah. uh, I mean, the story is kind of Scary, nothing. isn't it? It's kind of nothing. He's not really saying anything, though, when he... Tells that story, but his I guess that's just
1: kind of wrestling,
2: but that's also part of the yeah, right? That's exactly what they're doing, but that's kind of part of goes back to his character where he's all just talk and no substance, you know, it's all just this
1: masquerade, yeah. Oh, exactly, right? He doesn't really, he's like, now, now, now let me show you the tale, and then yeah. he just starts like his hands just start wrestling. Oh, he's gonna win, and he's, he's commentating it like <laughs> yeah, it's a boxing <laughs> match or something. Um, it's, it's really and, all, and funny. all the kids are like.
2: Absolutely, like fascinated and like captivated by this whole show.
1: And the shopkeeper is the like, "Shopkeeper, I've never heard oh my god, so well! I wish everyone oh, that was lady, like, Shut up, lady, <laughs> oh my god, yeah, she was, she's abs- egging on Shirley Winters to marry this dude. And oh like, my give god, her, give she her was, a break.
2: yeah, yeah, I she mean, was through abs- enough. Oh my god, absolutely. <laughs> oh yeah, and it's, you know, I mean, how long has it been since you know her?" poor husband's been in, it's yeah. cute, not long and yeah she's dealing with a lot of stuff and then yeah that lady oh my god she's she uh, awful. absolutely hoodwinked yeah um she's
1: terrible i hate that bitch <laughs> <laughs> i'm like no oh, yeah, like that bitch um but and, and you also while this is happening you kind of get some clues as to like the the trauma that has been inflicted upon especially johnny or john the um I, am i getting that right the character's name is john right the little I think boy you're right Oh, God. I don't actually Let's know. just fact, factoid check this bad <laughs> yeah, boy. just in case. Before I call him John the whole podcast and <laughs> don't even realize that it, it's like, uh, it's Jake. uh Okay. John. It is John. God damn it. Why didn't I just trust my instincts? <laughs> it is. So, it is John. Yeah. What's, John the, what's the daughter's name though? Pearl. Pearl. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Just good to know. Um, was... So, and you get these these first kind of clues that John is having, well, he's just got like this sort of PTSD yeah. What's happened um, with his dad, he's, he's gone through some stuff, and the last thing he needs is this psychopath pretending to be a religious dude, wooing over his mother. You mm-hmm. know. But what that leads to eventually, you know, Shelley Winters, she does agree to to marry him. She's sort of coerced by the town, as we said. Absolutely. Yeah. and By Icy Spoon. Icy Spoon, yes. Which is a great name. <laughs> what a, that's what the, a wild that's the, name. Shop, that's the shop owner. Yeah, that's the character's name. The character's Spoon. name, yeah.
2: And what's her husband? Um, Walt Spoon. Walter Spoon, yeah. Walt, yeah.
1: <laughs> great names. Cool. Anyway, continue. Um, but it leads to, on their wedding night, one of my favourite scenes in the film where yeah. Robert Mitchum's character is... Talking to Shelley Winters, she's laying in bed and, and he's sort of standing over her, mm-hmm. getting ready to jump into bed too. And you get the impression, you know, she wants to have sex. It's a wedding night. She hasn't had a man for a while. And Robert Mitchum is going to sort of um, give her a stern talking to him. Yeah. And uh, not only that, he's going he's gonna to slap her in the face. And the, and just that, that whole sequence, the way it's shot um, with sort of just like this pulled back shot of the whole scene. You've got this triangular... Room that they're in mm-hmm. and the lighting and, and the shadows and everything. It's just.
2: That's it, one shot that actually reminds me of Dr. Caligari. Oh, yeah. It was that
1: moment. And he's standing over her. Yeah. You know, and just the, the way like his face is lit up in mm-hmm. the background and his white shirt and black. Oh, it's it, it works so well in black and white and just his position over her. Yeah. And just she's domineering. Yeah. She's like pa- presented as powerless. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. I mean, seen. she's
2: absolutely vulnerable. She's had, you know, this, you know, her husband's just been executed. And she's, mm. you know, suddenly been made a widow. And as you said, been coerced by yeah. the townsfolk, in particular, Icy Spoon. And, and, and Walter Spoon. And yeah. Walter Spoon. <laughs> 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 I'm going to keep saying that name because I love it. <laughs> and so, this is a waiting night. Yeah. Uh, and she's, you know, uh, being... Uh, uh, browbeaten essentially. Well, yeah. Well, she's emotionally, physically... Oh, yeah. ...mentally abused by... Uh, He's gaslighting her, essentially. Absolutely. By Reverend... What's his name? Reverend oh. Harry Powell. Yeah. Robert Mitchum. Yeah. Uh, but I was going to say, also, she's just... How do I say it? Like, you know, when, like, she's... You know, you ex- there's the things that you kind of would expect, especially in the it's, time... It's a
1: normal expectation to... Well... She would expect that he wants to have sex on their wedding night. Yeah. And I imagine she wants to have sex too. Exactly. So I'm trying yeah. to think of the way to say that. But it's, I, I know what you mean. Like, is, but that it's sort of implying that she feels like it's her duty and she's doing the right thing by acting out her duty as a good wife to yeah, go to bed with her husband. That's what I'm but, trying to say. But But I think the film p- portrays her as wanting to um, be with this man, that she does be like, oh, he is a good man. She hasn't, she hasn't realised what kind of person he is until this moment mm. when he shames her into the idea that she would want to have sex with him. Well, exactly. Yeah. So, I
2: think it's the expectations that, you know, come along with your wedding night. Yeah. And, you know, everything she's doing, whether she wants to or not, is uh, what one would might expect on a wedding night. And yeah. yet, and yet she, he takes that, Advantage of that situation and shames her and makes her feel absolutely, absolutely horrible for even contemplating the idea of consummating on their wedding night. When like
1: could have thunk it.
2: Yeah, right. And it's just horrible. It's and like this poor woman's already gone. Like I said before, gone through so much, and then to have yeah have this level of emotional abuse inflicted upon her on her on the wedding night is just. Yeah. Uh, next level. It's a great back and forth between the two of them. I don't know if you want to highlight any of the dialogue there, but oh, some just of the telling, stuff.
1: Telling her to look in the mirror and, you know, look at yourself. Yes. You know, yeah. what do you see? You know, it's like, do you want to have kids? The woman's body was meant for begetting children. Mm-hmm. You don't want to have any more kids, do you? She's like no he's like well then we ain't gonna be banging sorry <laughs> yeah yeah he, he, he hits her as well like he he's, does he's yeah. physically violent and yeah. he's emotionally like gaslighting and abuse oh, it's, it's awful it's awful
2: and then and then, then what makes it even worse is i like i cut you out what yeah. makes it even worse is that the next scene or maybe very quickly after this like anyway switchblade at the end of oh that yes scene. that too yeah. yes but also like the next scene uh we get her preaching alongside him. Yeah. You know, saying, making up all these lies about how she was, you know, it was her fault that her husband had stole this money because it was her having, wanting him to provide for her, like, high living standards, you know, always like, she wanted to have, she wanted to have all the top, she wanted to have all his jewelry and, you know, fancy clothes and things and because of, her wayward ways that led her husband to do all these things when none of this is true. No, and ah, oh, it's just just oh. throwing
1: all of that guilt and blame like on herself. Yeah, based on the manipulation of this guy. Yeah, and and it's like, is he setting this up? He's setting this up so that when he murders her, it's going to look like a suicide. Mm-hmm. That's why he's doing this. Well, he actually no, he doesn't do that because he's setting it up so that he tells people. That she left and he doesn't know where she's gone. Yes. When really and this is one of the next I mean, to say that this is like a beautiful frame shot or this is a beautiful image is kind of a moot point. The whole thing is incredible yeah, to look that's at. A good point. Yeah. But the next shot that is really striking is her in a car at the bottom of a lake or a body of water. Yeah. And it's just the way the seaweeds are blowing in like the current of the water. And her hair is flowing along as well. And her eyes are open. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the creepiest... If you find a still image... This is a big spoiler alert, by the way. I think that's also, you know, to be expected if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the movie. Yeah. But just the still image of her in the water, dead, is one of those things as a kid that freaked me out. And as an adult, still freaked me out, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. And you mentioned earlier about uh, Guillermo del Toro, that was his favourite shot of the movie, and one that he was trying to replicate many times throughout his career, Yeah, and I can see why.
1: Oh, yeah, Uh, and he says the way, I can't remember what he says exactly, but just the way it's kind of juxtaposing that, it's sort of like a peaceful image, but it's also, it's a corpse.
2: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Yeah. Incredible, incredible. It's great, yeah. and then
2: also super tragic. Uh, around the same time as this is happening, we get poor Johnny running to, yeah, uh, their uncle, or whatever. In the Harpy. little Harpy, Harpy, yeah, in the little uh, cabin. Well, he had found blood.
1: the body, I think, right? So yeah. he's gonna get he. I think Harpy's probably way too drunk to even wake up at a certain point.
2: Well, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but yeah, like he, uh,
1: yeah, but yeah. he will he will end up dead as well, exactly. Yes. Yeah, and. There, I mean, it leads into Robert Mitchum is sort of uh, questioning Pearl and and Pearl is sort of a bit naive. Obviously, she's so young, but she's kind of, you know, entertaining, chatting with him. And he realizes that Pearl is going to give up the the information because he's Mm -hmm. tried it with John and John is like, nah, I hate you. Well,
2: John sees right through him. Yeah, Yeah,
1: you're not my dad. Um, But Pearl is more susceptible Mm -hmm. and naive. Pearl doesn't realize it. But the stolen money is hidden in her doll. Yeah. Robert yeah. Mitchum doesn't realize it yet, but he's going to figure it out pretty quickly mm-hmm. when he finds Pearl cutting up money and all that sort of thing. Does he find her cutting up money or does he just, I think he realizes where the money is and that the money is with the children. Yeah. And he's, he's I might have that wrong, I'm not, I can't recall, but he is going to start um, getting violent with the kids and that's when he starts stalking them. With the intent to kill them, essentially. Yeah, and he's and the way he's talking, I can feel myself getting awful mad. He's so calm and mm-hmm. and um, oh yeah, it, it, like you know, like you were telling me off off Mike, like it is surreal and nightmarish. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, and
2: he's getting frustrated by because uh, oh. he's you know his whole objective is to get that money. Yeah from the from from the start, and so he's trying to get he's got the mum out of the way. Mm. So now it's just like right, now you can work really work those kids to get that to get the information out of them. Ooh, yeah. Uh, and John's putting on a brave face and uh, is holding up and not giving him anything. So yeah. it's, he's getting yeah and he's starting to starting to lose his cool even though he's trying to keep it together and uh, it's it's yeah it's some
1: really yeah intense stuff. It it is it it gets intense and you know, like where he's coming down the stairs, looking for them in the basement. And yeah. he's kind of got his arms out like Frankenstein at one uh-huh. point. And then later on, like the shot of him, you know, they, they run down through the mud to like hop in a boat and they're going to escape. And then Robert Mitchum is ho- hopping in the water um, mm-hmm. and he's going after them. He's got the knife out. He's like literally. Yeah. And, you know, this the shot of him jumping in the water as the boat just gets offshore. That's actually, mm-hmm. it's all done on a soundstage. Yeah, wow. And he's just on his knees in that shot. It looks like it's up to his uh, waist, but he's just, he's just ducked down on his knees. And it reminded me of Creature from the Black Lagoon, which was a year earlier in 1954. But um, that whole river boat sequence that we get after that is all done on a soundstage as well. There were a lot of cool, fun things they did when um, making that sequence. But just you talking about his character, like getting frustrated, that part where the, the, the part that is really jarring for me when I watch it. Not in a bad way. Hmm. But where the boat has, you know, shifted off. Robert Mitchum has jumped in the water to try to catch him. He realizes he's not going to catch him. And just this scream that he lets out. Uh... Oh, yeah. Yeah. And And it's sort of like. He's been talking so calmly and, you know, I'm getting awful mad. And the way his, his cadence and demeanor has been relatively chill. And mm-hmm. then at that point where he just lets out that scream, it's like, oh, creepy. It's really creepy. Yeah. He, the he monster monster's loose. He has turned into like a- Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Like an otherworldly creature. Yes, exactly. that you've put there in the notes. Oh, I, love, yes. I love that. I love that you wrote that.
2: Uh, yes, exactly. The monster is let loose. Yeah. He's yeah. become this otherworldly creature now, just absolutely mindlessly dead set on just hunting these kids down and getting yeah. that getting that money. The whole oh, sequence yeah. that continues from there with them on their little race across the country to get away from him yeah, uh, is
1: really great. I loved it. Uh, it's all—it's that's it's, where the film really like gets rolling for me, doesn't it? And from here on out, it's just perfect for me as a film. But um, you remember how I said at the beginning of the film where there were the floating heads and it's set up like a kids' story? Yeah. This is the next sequence where we get another little glimpse of that weirdness, mm. and it's them on the boat. The kids are like—they're probably really hungry. They're not wearing much clothes. It looks cold out. They're just floating down the boat, but young Pearl. Begins to sing a song. Oh, yes.
0: Once upon a time, there was a pretty fly. He had a pretty wife, this pretty fly. But one day, she
1: You also get all these creatures in the background, you get yeah. owls, you get this cobweb up in the corner of the frame that was actually made with, like, a, one of the designers made it with, like, nylon and dripped honey on it. So, that's why the cobweb is dripping up in the mm. corner and they just superimposed it. And, you know, the rabbits in the corner of the frame, they're just superimposed in as well. Like, it was all done on a soundstage, but it looks, it looks theatrical, but it yeah. does still look really believable.
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: But... They've really utilized the soundstage and the setting to give you... It's so... It's kind of heartbreaking watching these kids. But you've got this song that's being sung. Mm-hmm. Which is this strange, creepy children's tune.
2: Yeah. And as you were saying, it goes back to that whole fairy tale
1: thing. It's, yeah. it's really
2: nightmarish fairy tale.
1: Yeah. It's like a nightmarish adventure that we're on. <laughs> exactly. And, and Robert Mitchum's character at this point... You know what he reminds me of? Hmm. because the kids are going to escape and they're going to hop in a barn and they're going to find, you know, refuge where they can. Um, But Robert Mitchum's character seems to pop up. He seems to follow them anywhere. He seems to know where they've gone and follow Hmm. them everywhere. It reminded me of the Terminator. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Because he's sort of, he becomes like this weird sort of mysterious, mystical dude that we don't see him traveling. We just see that, you know, the kids just are hiding from him, Mm -hmm. you know, um, Which is really awesome But I did want to talk about that shot of I was going to say You just yeah. mentioned
2: my favourite shot of the whole film Yes Which is the kids are hiding out in a little barn mm. And Robert Mitchum is on the way yeah. um, Trying to track them down I think they think maybe there's a little They've finally found a little bit of a some peace um, Yeah And they're trying to get a little bit of a rest And then you hear Robert Mitchum singing a song As yeah. he's riding on horseback on the horizon yeah. That and silhouette of him. Yes.
1: And it's so scary in the sense of, like, he's he's just rolling along town singing this song. But you know that when he he's, when he finds his kids, he's going to kill them. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that song he's singing is going to come into play later down the track. Um, but it's a song that I always find myself just sort of singing along, leaning, you know. Yeah. <laughs> leaning. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and it's a, it's kind of like a nice song. It's about being safe and secure from all harm. It's like a little religious tune. But him singing it, knowing what he's intending to do, just makes it all the more ooh, unsettling.
2: Absolutely. It's just this, like, impending doom. Oh, this yeah.
1: level of dread that you
2: just feel as you yeah. can just see him come into walking, or sorry, ride in yeah. to frame. And you're like, oh, my God. Oh, no. Yeah. And you just heart goes out for those kids.
1: And like you told me before, like, before we were recording, like, it's it's from the kid's perspective.
2: Exactly. So,
1: you're seeing him off in the distance, you know? Yeah. And the way they did this shot, it's a one of the famous shots as well. So, you've got little John in the barn and the hay on the ground. And then you've got the hill and, like, the, the light and the silhouette of a person riding a horse, Robert Mitchum, you know, singing. Mm-hmm. But that's actually... Did you, did you find out what that was? No. It's actually... A dwarf riding a pony. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's a um, uh, do do you call it yeah, dwarf For, force perspective. Yes, uh, yeah. yes. Using force perspective, amazing though. Like the, the how effective that shot is. Yeah, how simple they how simply they did it. Yeah, yeah
2: I love that. Honestly, that honestly yeah. favorite shot of the film. There's so many beautiful ones in that, but that one just really, really stuck with me. Like. The moment I saw it, it was like, wow, yeah. what a
1: shot. Um I'll wait till we get there before I tell you my favourite shot. Okay. There's so many, I mean, him in the him in the room with Shelly Winters where he's gaslighting her is, you know, one of my favourites. But I'll, I'll wait. I've got Me another too. one. Yeah. Me too. Uh yeah, there,
2: I mean there's so many good stuff and there's so many great it moments is. in this movie. And there's it's like and a combination of factors to it too. I mean, just the one you mentioned before about in the the wedding night. That's oh, that's yeah. great on so many so many levels and this is another one and a lot of it's whether it's actual dialogue that's fantastic Mm. actual characters or something like this one here where we're talking about the the barn and the rider and the horizon it's beautiful not just cinematography obviously but also just beautiful visual storytelling
1: yes yeah
2: and this film has lots of that
1: yeah like he's out there yeah and he's close enough that you can hear him sing, mm-hmm. but he doesn't know where you are. But he's gonna find you eventually. Exactly. He's oh, that. Yeah. He's that boogeyman. He's he is. this Yep. Yeah. He's. Yeah. You're right. He's the boogeyman. Ah. Oh, I do. I know. It sounds like I'm. You know, hyperbole, But I mean, this film is beloved for a reason. And yeah. I'm and so glad you liked. Yeah. I can, see why, it. I, yeah, My I can see why. Fe- My biggest fear is that I come back I'm like, how would you like it? And you're just like, oh, it was all right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm so glad you enjoyed this movie. Oh man, so much. So Much so, this is where the kids find refuge with Lillian Gish, her character yeah. Rachel Cooper.
2: Can I hang out before you go on? Yeah. I will say one thing that it did remind me of, which yeah. was a bit of a weird thing. It reminded me of the game Limbo. Oh, yes, yeah, just because of the, the more the lighting, yeah, and the, the silhouettes, and yeah, and just sort of the rider walking, moving across the horizon made me think of just. You know oh, your apparently. character in
1: that game moving along the horizon. Um, if you can find that game for, it's an older game now, but it should yes. be like on sale. If you can find it on sale, that and inside, inside, think, yes, that's is the another one. one that yeah, it's really, a so really good. Yeah. visual style. Oh, good, good pickup. Yeah, yeah, both great games. Very fun games. Yeah, yeah, and and Limbo is really creepy because it's yeah. also like. That little kid character is going to get killed and mm-hmm. impaled and maimed mm-hmm. and all. Oh. Which is exactly so. It's also it's thematically also
2: kind of similar yeah. to a degree because it's all about a kid trying to survive in this horrible situation.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, let's take a quick break. Yeah. Stop. Do, you want, do you want a slice of pizza? Yeah, stop. So yeah, we, we've moved on. We mentioned that, you know, right, you know, from that boat sequence on, like it's it's all go. Yeah. Um, and this is where we get introduced to Rachel Cooper, played by Lillian Gish, who, as we mentioned before, is kind of like the yin to the Robert Mitchum Yang. Yes. In that she's yeah. also religious and she's strict and she's stern. hmm But her character is really really awesome because she's. ...tough with the kids... ...but you also sense that she cares about them... ...and that she understands... Um, ...she has more of a... ...authentic and pure... ...attitude towards her religious... ...you know... ...perception of... ...where things should go... ...and how things should be... ...what did you think of the sequence... ...where... ...there's this young girl... ...I don't remember the young character's name... ...but she's one of the young... ...girls that has been taken in by Lillian Gish... ...Lillian yeah, Gish is, ...her yeah. character takes in these young... ...like homeless children I guess... And one of them is a little bit older, and she's like a early teenager. Like a teenager. teenager? Yeah. And she likes boys, and she's going to sort of sneak out and go to town, buy some ice cream. And she bumps into Robert Mitchum, mm-hmm. and um, Robert Mitchum buys her ice cream. And like, what did you think of that whole interaction after Lillian Gish finds out? Um, and she sort of confesses, and this is how Robert Mitchum's character is going to find out where the kids, John and Pearl, are at. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was
2: just one, obviously. Robert Mitchum's character and how mm. manipulative and creepy and just awful his character is so that he would try and um, talk up this young girl. Yeah, and uh, it's like is,
1: he's, is he talking about sex with her? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. He's so he's been so anti-sex, like he didn't want to have sex with Shirley Winters. His little, yeah, but his this little, is little all pocket knife was was flinging up when he's in the. Why is he even going to the strip parlor if he doesn't like it? You know what I mean? Yeah. I- It's so funny, Um, but the only reason I bring it up is because I love Lillian Gish's reaction to this young woman confessing what she did. Exactly, the other thing
2: that I like is, yeah, exactly, I think we're on the same wavelength here, is that she understands this girl, and understands, you know, she's just young and naive, and, you know, she just wants to find love. Yeah.
3: You were looking for love, Ruby, in the only foolish way you knew how. We all need love, Ruby. I lost the love of my son. I found it with you all. You're going to grow up to be a strong, fine woman. And I'm going to see to it that you do.
1: She does. And whereas Robert Mitchum's character is punishing those he deems as sinful and expressing sexual desire, Lillian Gish is sort of like, I get it. We all just want to love. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a refreshing thing for a 1955 film. Yeah, good point. Yeah, because it because is a young character that just got manipulated by an older guy, and she has been sneaking out and you know letting the boys buy her ice cream. But Leningish is understanding. She's not going to punish her. She's been Gish has been so strict with the other kids, but mm-hmm. in this moment, I get it. I get it. You just want love. Yeah, it's a beautiful moment.
2: It is, and you know. It's very It's very uh, understanding and tolerant Yeah It's just A young woman Becoming A woman Learning these things And you know And uh, and even I mean Even though she's strict with The other kids I think Even with John and Pearl She is understanding on them With them as well mm. When it comes to the moment uh, When we'll get to soon Yeah She She doesn't hesitate She's all there for them She's ready When, to, uh, when, when, when needed
1: Yeah Oh yeah She's ready to throw it down Yeah yeah, I just love her character in this, because it could have very easily fallen into, like, a trope of the stern old lady. Like, you know, we talked about Grave of the Fireflies, and they go mm-hmm. live with that auntie, and the auntie just turns into a total bitch. It could have troped that way, yeah. where you do have this authoritative older character that is stern and strict and religious. But just, ah, I just really loved it, just how refreshing that was that she- had that attitude towards this young woman that, you know, put the whole f- household in danger by giving up this information to Robert Mitchum's character. Yeah. But, you know, I get it. You know, like we said, she she gets it. She, you just want love, you know. That leads to Robert Mitchum showing up at the house. Mm-hmm. And what's Lillian Gish's reaction to the whole love-hate speech that he attempts
2: right exactly and you talked before about how she's the yin to his yang yeah i think that her just completely dismissing and not even letting him finish that whole speech is just yeah epitomizes how much you know she's that perfect juxtaposition between not only him but also just the uh townsfolk and yeah the kid's mum. the way she and gets swept away by uh, by, um, yeah. by Robert Mitchum. Yeah. Um, and, and just as also the townsfolk do. And then Lillian Gish just completely sees straight through him and does not...
1: Cut that shit out. You know, exactly. That ain't gonna fly with me. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fun. Isn't it? She, she, she's like, ah, you, you know, just stop. Stop already. She knows what's going on. And she trusts the kids saying that he's you know he's after us so he knows where they live and lillian gish knows that all right it's time to kind of you know we gotta hold the fort Mm -hmm. it still reminds me of terminator but it leads to my favorite shot of lillian gish sitting there with her her gun yeah on the porch and you've got robert mitchum outside singing his song Mm -hmm. and to me like that is my favourite shit in the world. I know, like, I guess I'm shallow in the sense as this old lady, like, hold a gun, ready to hold down the fort. I love that shit. Yeah. But also, the way that they've um, done the lighting for that shot mm-hmm. is really awesome. Did you want to talk about the lighting in this movie?
2: Oh, sure. I mean, we talked about it briefly at the top of the show, but just the um, film noir lighting and yeah. expressionist style that it uses. It's a lot of uh, uses of... Uh, hard lighting rather than the modern uh, soft lighting that you get in on film shoots these yeah. days. Um, obviously, it's you know more of a one or two point lighting setups rather than like a three point lighting setups that mm-hmm. you get now. So you generally would get now in a modern film like a you know a, a, a key light, which is either the main light source, and then yeah. you have a fill to sort of fill that in, and then you would have like a backlight to make the person pop. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in this, you get a lot of one or two point lighting setups so a lot of like low key lighting with those hard sources of lighting Mm. um so very minimal fill lighting so it's just very sort
1: of hard yeah light giving those strong shadows yeah real
2: yeah exactly yeah real yeah really sharp kind of look to it and um yeah this film just really utilizes that super well real strong use of lighting and shadows in particular
1: and we've seen it throughout the whole film, but in this shot in particular, um, which is my favorite shot. Did I already say that? It's my you favorite did. Shot. Yeah. I said it again. Yeah, this one. So, just to describe what we're talking about here, and when you like, like you're mentioning, like with the silhouettes and the lighting, the two point lighting that they're doing, you've got Lillian Gish in the four frame sitting in a chair, like a rocking chair on a porch of a house. And she's portrayed in darkness. Her whole. Figure essentially is appearing as a black silhouette, and whereas Robert Mitchum is standing in the distance, sort of looking in, uh, singing his song, but and the light is on him, mm-hmm. which you know is sort of playing off or sort of flipping that general kind of convention of the association of lightness with good and darkness with bad. In this one, Gish yeah. is a dark silhouette. But she's actually she's the good guy, yeah, yeah. And Robert Mitchum's the bad guy, but he is lit up, which you know we're we're close to it. We're going to talk about like the you know the interpretation or our interpretation of the subtext or the themes. But I, I think that was just a brilliant sort of like quick capsule uh, way to really visually show how this film is talking about good and bad and. Religion Being used for good and bad Yeah And the way he's shot in the light Even though he's a fake Using religion as A, a tool for manipulation And she's in the You know her, She's a dark silhouette Even though she is you know, And she's only a gun Which makes it even cooler Yeah But she is singing a song And she knows the proper words to the song But her song is the same song as his Right But the lyrics are slightly different
0: hmm hmm mm-hmm. Leaning on Jesus, safe and secure, secure from, from all alarms. Leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus, leaning on, Jesus, leaning on
1: the ever- um, Which is also going towards that.
2: Well, it's like know? she understands, she actually understands what the song is about, At least that's the vibe yeah. I get. Yeah And Um, his
1: song is just You know Leaning Leaning on the everlasting arms But she's She's referencing Leaning on Jesus And they're they're Harmonizing together It's a beautiful moment Yeah But it's also like Filled with tension
2: But also going back To what you say With the yin and yang I think that's Again epitomizes that as well Because they're Two different sides Of the same coin
1: Almost Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exactly Yeah Exactly right Yeah And Like the same coin But two Polar opposites Exactly one is murdering children. Yes. And, and one is protecting children. And one is forgiving and protecting children. Yeah. yeah. No, you're exactly right. Um, and that's my favorite shot. You know, I'll say it again. I can, a third time. I can see that. <laughs> um, well, I can see that. Well, I mean, after... So, after that part, you know, we, we get the police being called. Um, Lillian Gish kind of shoots at him and he screams like an animal and runs yeah. off to, to the barn. Which is sort of funny. Yeah, true. Yeah. It's was kind of funny. He's like, he's like a Warner Brothers cartoon or something. <laughs> it was a bit. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, he's like a, a, a shot animal or a wolf or a rabbit or something. I don't know. It was weird. Yeah. Um, but the, but the movie kind of wraps up there. But also before you know, the movie doesn't just wrap up. But it's
2: no, because you get you know the townsfolk who have yeah. come back around. So they've figured out the uh, that Robert mission's character is not. As uh, as yeah. he says years and they uh, turn into this violent mob, and they're like, yeah. you know, got the, the classic torches pitchforks. and pitchforks, and yeah, they're uh, they're mad, and they're gonna they're gonna yeah. take him down.
1: And whereas before, they were so shallow in the sense that they were willing to tell Shelley Winters to marry him just because he was religious and said all the right things. Oh, totally. Now but, it's, but now it's the opposite. Now they want to kill him. Because he, you know, even despite of what he is, like they just—they're just, they're just so extreme. These,
2: yeah, but like. they're also just so like simple-minded. Yeah, can be so easily led, especially the um the shop owners. Yeah, they uh, the epitomise yes that whole uh, yes. You're
1: right. They are like... easily led. Yeah, individuals. They are the two characters that give all of that dialogue and exposition about it. Yeah, yeah. they sort of lead and. Lead the charge when it comes to one, <laughs> yes, hang him or kill him, yes. Um, unlike, yeah. unlike John, unlike John, who's yeah. the
2: one that was always been wise from the start of the film and has seen all through yeah. the masquerade, and then he has, uh, he breaks down and um, you know,
1: kind of triggers his PTSD a little bit. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. It and reminds him of his dad, yeah. and when he
2: got taken away by the
1: police, and that's it. Kind of it. it I know we're going to talk about like our interpretation of the movie yeah. and the large, you know, I'm not sure. I'm sure it's just not our interpretation. A lot of people come to these, these conclusions, but that's one thing that I am like not a hundred percent on, like how, like what to take from that, the way that he's suddenly saying, you know, thinking about his dad being taken away, mm. his PTSD, and he's saying, please don't go, you know, mm-hmm. and this character has been trying to kill him and his little sister the whole film, but now he's, having this reaction i I know it's he's thinking about his dad but the to to include that specific scene you know yeah yeah um and that's one of the things you can see in the documentary footage that comes if you buy the blu-ray you'll get this great additional like long doco on it and it's charles lawton directing him in that scene the young boy Uh, it's really great but yeah like did you did you have a take on that like why they Why they include this kind of absent father figure PTSD that that springs up when Robert Law, uh, when Robert Mitchum is being taken away by the police? Oh, not really. I mean, at first I was a little surprised.
2: Yeah, I was a little taken back by it. I like it as time went on, uh, more I thought about it. Mm. But at first I was like, sort of a bit of an odd choice. Yeah, me
1: too. And um, but now I like it.
2: But now I like it, yeah. So, I'm, I think we're the same then. Um, Still not- How about you? Like, is there any more to add to it? I mean,
1: I, I, in terms of, like, I mean, just a lot of the times when I'm thinking to myself what a movie, what I think it means, I just sort of repeat what happens and what I see. So, it's like there's a young boy with PTSD of an absent father figure. Yeah. And I guess it-
2: I mean, that's pretty much uh, what uh, I took from it, too.
1: I don't know. I really don't have a better answer than that. But- just the maybe no, maybe just that's... the impact on children of the um the behaviors of adults and especially when it yeah. comes to the trauma inflicted upon kids from I mean the whole film is about putting these kids through the trauma of being hunted and hurt because of the selfishness or you know what adults are doing it's like a Cohen brothers movie you know you know how in all the Cohen brothers movies where the quest for money like they want to people want to cheat the system and get money uh, in illegal ways, which causes their whole lives to go into havoc. Like No Country for Old Men, finding a mm-hmm. briefcase full of money, Absolutely. or yep. Fargo, you know, trying to commit uh, kidnapping fraud and all that. All Every Coen Brothers movie, essentially, almost revolves around that concept. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Maybe yeah. it's that sort of the impact that our selfish decisions have on children. I don't know. Like, I haven't... Maybe I need to watch it again. I'll figure it out. But that's my initial
2: inclination. No, I mean, I think I think it really is... Uh, I don't think it has to be anything more than that. I think it is. It can be quite as simple as that. Yeah. Honestly, that yeah. it's just he has PTSD, he has this trauma, and that yeah. seeing uh, Robert Mitchum's character be taken up by the police just uh, evokes the, his memory of uh, his dad, and he's like, oh, I'm, like, it's triggered. just triggered by it. Yeah, I, I mean, that's how I saw it. I, I can't. Yeah. I don't think it has to be anything more than that. No, maybe maybe yeah. it is. Maybe people can see more into it, and that's a, that's the beauty of film. That's. uh you can be very layered, um, yeah. And people can have their own interpretations, and in they're as valid as anybody else's. Uh, Absolutely, but Absolutely. yeah, I think I think we both uh, felt the same about that. And I, yeah, I kind of liked it. That I was a little bit confused at first. I, I liked that it went that way. Um, I think. Also, I wonder whether it was a bit of a release. His whole world has yeah. been uh, up, 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 upheaved, and he's you know lost his mum, yeah. He's lost his dad. He's lost everything and it's is kind of the this final end this final conclusion yeah and he can finally like let go
1: it's a weird twist on the end but I'm glad they included it because it reminds you of what the kids have gone through yeah and that it is their story you know the film started with this Kids like this introduction as it's a story for children. The way there's the faces floating and Mm -hmm. the voiceover saying, "Now let me tell you the story." Or don't forget what I told you about a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing. You know, yeah. And and it does bring it back to the kids because we've been with Lillian Gish and Robert Mitchum for some time. But so I like that about it. And I mean, just I know we've already talked about it, so we don't have to go into it too much. The interpretation of the film, but. Mm-hmm. Really just, like, you already mentioned how Robert Mitchum's character is using this as a tool um, and, this you know, this religious attitude. Absolutely. This, he's manipulating people into thinking that he is doing God's work. He thinks he is doing God's work. Yeah. And he's just murdering women and killing children. I love that, like, you, that you brought up that Charles Lawton sort of was inspired by a real-life person because that's real life for A lot of people, especially in America. Yeah. I mean, even like, you know, politicians are doing it. And and, Um, yeah, and in Australia too. Yeah. Absolutely. It's sort of a global epidemic of people utilizing religious, you know, uh, uh, how do I put this? Taking advantage of... Cults
2: are real and there's a lot of them. There's a lot more than you realize. Um,
1: Uh, But the the movie really does go deep on that When, when you pick it apart, like we have a little bit and and look at it for what it is. Yeah, it's not just this fifties film that holds up well because of its beautiful photography. It really does hold up because of the story it's telling. Is like holy shit, you know. It's it's just one of the things that I loved about the movie. Me too, me too. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I mentioned it
2: earlier, but yes, I love the so whole, I love the whole the whole idea of you know that people could use supposed religious superiority for you know nefarious selfish personal means.
1: Oh yeah, uh, is it was, is it was a, a great
2: territory to explore uh, i also loved uh not only that Rich robert misham's character and the way he does use these manipulative techniques yeah uh, but also just the looking at just the way that people are manipulated by those techniques yeah um and looking at the two shop owners and the way that you know they're so easily, yeah, yeah, exactly. They're so easily led and misled, well, misled um, and that's you know peer pressure, and yeah, all these kind of uh, things that are explored as well. You know, and then poor old Willa and how uh, she, she seems a little bit uh hesitant about him at first, but you totally. know, but like you know, the way that the rest of the community that she lives in and the, her vulnerable state that she's in, and the way that. The yeah. two shop owners that she works for, you know, have fallen in love with Robert Mitchell's yeah. character and they just peer pressure on an other like, you know, group, you know, mentality can really uh, yeah, can exactly. really can really uh you know because it's these social break people down.
1: It's it's like it's these things that you just these magical words you can say to have people in society be like, Oh yeah, you're good. You're an eligible candidate for this woman that's lost her husband yes. because you said the magic words. Yeah. Talking about God, essentially, and how hey, yeah. you're a religious dude. Great stuff. Yeah. Um, but Absolutely. But it, it links to why this film potentially didn't do well. Because this movie, like, we touched on it, but it did not do well at all when it came out. Yeah. And part of that may be because the previews didn't do well. So, then they didn't market it as much as they could have. Mm. But it also had a negative critical response at the time you know, maybe people weren't ready to see that kind of um, implied violence and actual violence on screen, you know, because in the 50s it was more like, you know, you've got some musicals and you've got your westerns and your heroes and your villains and clear-cut, you know, black and white. This movie's far more grey in terms of its commentary on society like we were talking about. And also it's kind of weird. Like we've been mentioning, it's a weird movie. It's got strange... Genre mashups of, is it, you know, it's presented as like a children's or like a boy's adventure kind of thing. But it's also about a psychopath stalking children with a switchblade out, ready to to kill Exactly. For money. Yeah. So. And masquerading as this religious
2: preacher that obviously, you know, especially a lot of Christian audiences are not going to be very pleased to see. But I think also what's worth mentioning is that. This was, what, 1955? So by this stage, I think by 1954, around that sort of time... Yeah, by 1954, over 50% of of, uh, movies were uh, in colour. So I think that also could be part of it. Oh, yeah. So this was around the time where colour film was becoming more prevalent, Mm. and so I think maybe that was also a factor too where people wanted to go see uh, big-colour movies. People had TVs and people were watching black-and-white TV shows, and so people were going out to cinemas to watch these big colour production, Technicolour and all that was a thing. Yeah. And so maybe that was also part of it. Even though obviously oh, totally the cinematography right, yeah. now and how and the visuals are absolutely stunning and you know, now we can look back at and appreciate, I think yeah. at the time they may have been dismissed because they weren't in colour. Yeah, that. No, good are. point.
1: And, and, and due to that reaction, it was Charles Lawton, as we said, it was his only film. So this, he's a one and done director. Yeah. Um, which is a real shame. And there's some other fun factoids, too. You know, like there's a 1991 TV movie remake. Yeah, right. There. You can find that on YouTube. I don't recommend it. Yeah, <laughs> okay. It, oh, did you OG. watch it? Oh, no, even- nah, I flicked through it. Because oh, yeah, as soon okay. as you posted it, I looked it up and flicked through it. And I was... um, What's the opposite of pleasantly surprised? <laughs> yeah, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> Oh wow! Well,
2: I was going to say, speaking of uh, adaptations, uh, there's in re-releases. I hear there's also works being made on a new uh, remake.
0: Huh? At
2: least that's <laughs> the news, anyway. Yeah, uh, we'll see okay. whether anything comes of this. You know, it might be one of those ones that just yeah thinks Universal Studios, one of the studios, is is looking into uh, yeah making a new remake of this film. So we'll see.
1: If you're going to redo it, I suppose why not you know there's room for everything these days i shouldn't be closed off to more things it's just it's like it's a beloved film so exactly uh but i mean we, it might be yeah. like that
2: 991 tv movie and just oh no one even realizes <laughs> it ever exists and probably wishes they didn't see it and it may be just the same thing
1: but that but then that, it's just shit because like it's like the Robocop remake, or it's like Batman. If I like the Michael Keaton late 80s Batman, and I say, I like Batman movies, I have to clarify, well, no, I don't like the Ben Affleck Batman movies, and I think Twilight Guys movies is okay, and I think Christopher Nolan's movies are okay. I know, I'm talking about the Michael Keaton, you know what I mean? I've got to- Yeah. I've suddenly got to just that's, delineate that's a between- Uh, i don't know i'm of two
2: minds minds of it i think yes i can see what you're talking about but also at the same time it doesn't take away the original the original still is there it still
1: exists but that's the right attitude to have jimmy but
2: (laughs) but yes it can be a little frustrating especially when something like batman when there is just so many versions of it yeah Um, no that's right you know or when you're like you know Go to put the version on, and you're like, Oh, damn it, is that right? And we did that with um, yeah, we did that with uh, Grave of the Fireflies,
1: yeah, okay, and the different like subs or Oh, well, no,
2: no, no, because there's a TV movie version oh, that was sort of yeah. live action version, oh. and yeah, and it was like, Oh, wait, no, I don't want to watch that version, <laughs> no, I want to yeah. watch the uh, the good version. No, yeah. that, that that actually, before I hear that version, is actually not too bad, but you know what I mean, it's, I do, yeah, having to you know. It's, Distinguish which version is which can be a little bit frustrating. That's exactly what you mean. But yes, um, well, yeah. Should we uh, look at one movie that had trouble with the censorship board to look at another one that had trouble with the censorship board, also starring Robert Mitchum? Yeah, and Cape uh, Fear. I've seen the
3: worst, the dregs, but you—you you are the lowest. You just put the law on my hands. And I'm going to break your heart with it. I got a little plan for your wife and kids. They're never going
2: to forget. Never. Released in 1962, not 1991, directed by J. Lee Thompson and starring Gregory Peck, Robert Mitchum and Polly Bergen, J. Lee Thompson uh, also worked under uh, Hitchcock as a dollar coach um, and... Yeah. Um, Hitchcock storyboarded an early treatment of this movie before he left in a dispute with the studio. And then Thompson Ah. took that rough draft and then developed upon that.
1: So this could have been a Hitchcock film. Yes, which is why it has a lot of Hitchcock vibes to it. It does, yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, Quickly, also, J. Lee Thompson, quite a well-known distinguished director. Yeah. He did the uh, Guns of Navarone. Oh, uh, he did indeed. two of the I think two of the uh, Planet of the Apes films. Which ones? Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, and Battle for the Planet of the Apes. I think it was that. I think it was those two. Is I think beneath no beneath. Yeah, is yeah. The Battle, Battle for one. the Planet of the Apes and Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Do
1: you like? Hey, just quick spin off. Do you like the original Planet of the Apes movies? Where do you stand on them?
2: I don't have a huge opinion on it. I've seen only the first one.
1: Like the Planet of the Apes. the fir- Yeah, the 60s one? Yeah. Yeah, cool. Did you like it? Yes. Yeah, cool. Just checking. Yeah. So. <laughs> How
2: about you? you- Love it. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Love it. How about you? <laughs> Sorry. I, th- I find I those I've, films... i lost it, man. I, I find those happened. films quite enjoyable. Oh, you do? Oh, good. If it has Planet and Apes in the title... I will be I'll be there I'll be a fan cool yeah. even um uh fuck face what's his name Tim Burton even that guy even right. when he makes it I just I just enjoy watching apes be people
2: yeah, yeah 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 I did really like the new ones
1: yeah me too they're really awesome yeah one of the biggest gasps in the cinema was in the first of the remakes or the reboots mm-hmm when Caesar talks for the first time and says, yeah. no, no, the whole cinema just went, <gasps> yeah, so good. So good, yeah. I ah, yeah, love man. it. Dawn, Dawn love of, it. The of the Planet Apes was They're really incredible. fucking awesome movies, hey. Yeah. Um, and that's the same dude that did the Batman, Robert Pattinson one. And um, he brings that same kind of like eye yeah, for, right. for details and for like atmosphere and... Let's do Planet of the Apes one day, bro. We should definitely lie. do Planet of the Apes one day. Anyway, sorry, Cape Fear. <laughs> yes, going
2: <laughs> back to Cape Fear. Um, to so Cape Fear, American uh, noir psychological thriller. Yep, it was adapted from a 1957 novel titled The Executioners. Ah, yeah. So it's
1: another novel adaptation. Cool.
2: Gregory Peck uh, had his own production company uh, with uh, Cy Bartlett, and they made *The Big Country* and *Pork Chop Hill* before this. Peck had, was working on *The Guns of Navarone*. Yeah, okay. With Jay Lee Thompson, and that's where he obviously liked his style of directing and thought, "Hey, this guy—you know—saw him do one action sequences and then two more intimate scenes, mm. and thought he did well on both of those, and so he uh, hired him for for this film." Peck didn't like the original titles of The Executioners, which he's absolutely right to think so. I also think it's a terrible title.
1: Doesn't give you much of an idea.
2: When he was thinking of uh, a new title, he decided that movies named after places tend to be very successful. So he looked at a map of the United States until he happened upon Cape Fear in North Carolina. Oh, wow. Is that how he did it? That's how he did it. Wow. Yeah.
1: I like that. Hey, you know what else I like? Pork Chop Hill. I've never seen
2: it. <laughs> or based, you just like the name, I just, yeah, I, just okay. like that, I just like that name, yeah, fair. Now, yeah, so it is, is, is a good name, yes. You're Pork, right. Chop Hill. Yeah, Pork Chop Didn't Hill, never
1: thought I'd hear Gregory Peck and Pork Chop Hill in the same. <laughs> I have to add that to the um list, but yeah, so and, and it was remade in like 1991, and yes, remade so I, in 1991. I imagine a lot of people have seen the Scorsese at- remake, yes, yeah. yes, but so they we- should watch this
2: one. They should. We, we will get on to a bit of the, probably the differences as we go between the two of them. Yeah. And maybe what we also think of uh, each of those movies. But obviously, we'll primarily be focusing on the 1962 version here.
1: Definitely. Yeah.
2: Should I run through the plot or what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> Max Cady, played by Robert Mitchum, is released from prison. Uh, he promptly tracks down Sam Bowden, who uh, is... This is after doing a eight-year prison sentence for rape, by the way. Sam Burden uh, is a lawyer who he holds personally responsible of his conviction because Sam interrupted his attack and he uh, testified against him. Uh, When Max finds uh, Sam and his family, he begins to stalk and subtly threaten them. He poisons and kills their family dog. Yeah. Which is horrible. It's messed up. Yeah. Um, So while Sam can't prove that Max did this... And he has no luck with his friends at the police office yeah. trying to find a crime to...
1: They want to find anything they can to... Yeah,
2: to put on him. Get him out or Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, he tries paying him off. He goes off yeah. him some money. He also turns that down. And in the end, he uh, gets a, hires a private detective to try and track him down. And uh, Yeah. The private detective comes across Diane Taylor who has been raped by Max... Diane Taylor does not want to uh, testify against yeah. uh, Max, despite what the private detective and Sam Bowden say.
1: She thinks that Max Cady will eventually, like, you know, he will he might serve time, but eventually he'll be back and he'll maybe do even worse when he comes back. Exactly. That's why she's like, I just want to get out of here.
2: Yeah. You know? Yeah. Sam Bowden hires three men to go beat up Max Caddy. Cady. Cady. <laughs> To beat up Max Cady and coerce him to leave the town. Uh, But this plan does not go so well. And Max gets the better of all three of them. Max Cady, lawyer, vows to have Sam Bowden disbarred. And so, with the help of the police, devises this plan. So, while he's going to have to head off to Atlanta to, you know, talk to the uh, civics or whatever it's the uh, the council to prove that he's an upstanding lawyer, he's going to trick max and lure him to their boat on cape fear where he will think that his wife and daughter are alone
1: yeah and, th- and that's one of the things that you know is worth mentioning you know yeah so gregory peck is a lawyer mm-hmm. doing some shifty stuff to protect his family but max Cady is hiring lawyers as well and yeah. he's lawyering up and, you know. This was the first time I had seen this film. Was it the first time you had seen this movie as well? Yes. And what, what did you think of it? I loved it. Yeah. yeah? Oh, I really awesome. liked it. Yeah. Uh, how about you? Me too. Me too. Yeah, cool. I really enjoyed it. And, and similar to Night of the Hunter, way more risque and mm-hmm. unnerving and creepy than I thought it would be. Especially with some of the... Like the film has a lot of allusions to violence, not violent scenes per se. There's a little bit, but it's more like what, especially Robert Mitchum's character. Yeah. Like again, he's playing this wild villain, but it's what he talks about doing. Mm-hmm. It's really mm-hmm. fucked up. <laughs> oh my God. And, and it yeah. took me by surprise for the time period the film was released in.
2: I mean, right from the start. I mean, you know, he's obviously served his eight-year prison sentence for rape. Yeah. So he's already the start was a bit of a piece of shit. Oh, absolutely. Um, that's one thing that is different from the 1991 version is yeah. that Sam Bowden interrupts Max from attacking a victim and then testifies against him. While in the 1991 version, hmm. he's the lawyer who represents him.
1: He's defending him. Defending him. Yes. And he kind of knowingly. Hot. Omits exactly. evidence that that could have worked in his favour, exactly. But he knows he did do it in the ninety-one one. He just doesn't do right by his client, and, yeah. and that's where the theme of the nineteen sixty-two version and the ninety-one version is kind of similar. Or and like to me, when I was watching the movie, I, I included it in our notes too. I was like, "What is the sort of meaning behind this film? The law, like." That you shouldn't follow the law at times. That the law just doesn't work at times. Did you have a? Yeah. I mean, I have several ideas. I mean, I think we'd, you just said one of them
2: that is hundred percent part of it is that. Yeah. Is that the justice system is broken? Yeah. That's kind of a simple answer. But then there's a lot more potential ones. I definitely, uh, you know. The ways in which the law can be used for and against us, and not equal, and, yeah. our, and our standing in society, whether we people of a different race or different colour or different, you know, poor, rich, whatever, it's all not equal. Yeah. Uh, so there's hints at that, but then also I don't know whether this is definitely the case, but I was curious. It was also about whether fair representation can be given to victims of sexual abuse and rape, because oh, we I see. see max have a talk with peggy who's the um who's sam bowden's wife on the boat yeah towards the end of the film and then of course i mentioned before about how max rapes that poor diane uh, who doesn't want to make the statement to the police and to the private detective yeah and about how people of you know things like sexual abuse and rape don't want to make a statement they don't want to people want on the spot and people won't believe them and especially nowadays in the whole you know me Too and post-Me Too era that we mm. live in. I think people are a lot more open to talking about this and giving a bit more representation to some of these people and giving a voice to some of these people. And I don't know, I wonder whether... I, don't know, I saw that maybe, I don't know if that was their intention, but that's how I perceived it, that there was a bit of a, yeah. a commentary about just how, you know, victims of these horrible crimes are silenced and don't get to have a voice.
1: It totally is. I mean, it's a huge plot point that... They could get Max Katie for this crime he commits. The reason why the people won't testify is because they don't want to go through the questioning that is going to come with being on the witness stand. Yeah. And the trauma that they're saying they will have to go through isn't worth it, you know, to put him away. Yeah, absolutely. And in the 1962 one that we're talking about, it's also that he will come back and commit worse crimes. <clears throat> but you're exactly right, yeah. That's like a huge plot point in, hmm. in both films. We should maybe mainly focus on the, <laughs> the on Robert this Mitchell one. one. Yeah. Yeah. But but no, it's worth talking about the 91 version as well because it includes the exact same sequence, Yeah,
2: I just wanted to... Why I brought up the whole Sam Bowden is slightly different in terms of his relationship with Max is because I think that adds a different perspective for the film because it in does. the 91 version... Nick Nolte, who plays yeah. uh, Sam, yeah. is a bit more of a grey character. He's not so yeah. pure in his intent or... he's not he so. Of, much, he starts with a bit more of a greyer place. So yeah. for this version, I feel like... Again, you know, it's different and I, I can see why different audiences will like it differently. But for me personally, when I saw this one, because I had seen the 91 version before, yeah. and I do like that version. I think it's very good. Me too. Um, But I kind of actually like this, and I thought Peck is better in that role than Nick Nolte is. But I also liked that Peck kind of starts in more of a pure place and goes, it's more of a a substantial change from
1: a good to evil. Not not good to evil,
2: but like, you know, a good man gone wrong.
1: Well, in the 91 version, Nick Nolte's character has something to it confess and admit by the end, which is that he skirted his duties as a lawyer in withholding... Something that could have been used in Max Cady's defense. Whereas in the, yeah, in the 62 one, Peck has nothing, it, no. nothing like that. He's just, he's a good guy that did the right thing. Yeah. Um. But the law isn't working for him now. Exactly. I kind of like that the 91 version adds that extra layer to Nick Nolte's character. Because it, it does, you know, everything that you've just described. Like, mm. it, it does add another layer of, you know, text to interpret
2: yeah agreed yeah
1: but i think robert mitchum steals this movie he does yeah right as good as robert de niro is i love robert mitchum in it yeah same as night of the hunter he's this cool talking kind of force of nature almost Mm -hmm. that is saying these awful things like this movie almost got an x rating i think because of the things he's saying yeah wow like talking about yeah, you popped you popped it in the notes like this the, the juiciness of his wife oh my god that scene <laughs> oh That was god. like oh my god
3: so the man sells me a beer and i figure maybe i might rent me a boat now just how many laws you got against that counselor look katie maybe you can get away with dog poisoning beating up on a little drifter like diane taylor don't push your luck with me Say, she's getting to be, uh, getting to be almost as juicy as your wife, ain't
2: she? You <laughs> Yeah.
1: And the allusions to violence. You well, know, like Juicy, when... you know,
2: he's talking about his, um, he's talking about Sam's daughter. Yeah. On the, on the, on the jetty, on the pier. Yeah. Oh, okay. And he's like, oh god. yeah. And he's looking down at her and she's like bent over cleaning the, uh, the, the front of the boat. And, yeah. and, you know, he's just got short shorts on, that kind of thing. And he's oh, looking dead yeah. and he's like, ooh, juicy. You go along those lines and it's like next level disturbing and creepy. And you're like, oh, my God, like, it's, just, yeah. it's disgusting. Um,
1: and the word rape was removed from the script before shooting entirely. The film still really upset the senses when it came out because it was this continuous threat of a sexual assault on a child. Yeah. It was just impending and implied. That Mm -hmm. it was going to happen. Mm -hmm. So, I think to get around the British censors, because, you know, Britain at the time had way more, you know, censorship going on. Right. Um, Especially, like, later with their whole video nasty thing Mm -hmm. that they did. But um, they required a a good, a decent edit and deleting of certain bits in this film to get through the British censors. Still got an X rating at the time through the British rating system. Hmm. Yeah. Crazy yeah. though. Like, uh, same for, like, Night of the Hunter talking about how it's it holds up and also just that it took me by surprise in the content of it. Because you watch these older films and you don't expect that you're going to get allusions to, like, when Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum are sitting down and Peck offers him the, you know, the cash to leave. Mm-hmm. And he figures out that it would be, oh, if I was in jail for ten years and you're offering me ten thousand and you know daily, that's the less the minimum wage. You know, I love that bit. Yeah, yeah. That he just he just sort of stooges him on the maths. But <laughs> but then but then Robert Mitchum's character talks about what he did. Like he gives an example of, here's what I do to people. And he gives the example of the previous wife that he had. I think.
3: Uh, let's go back to talking about values. The value of a family. You probably didn't even know I had a family, did you? One wife and one kid, that's what I had when you sent me up. She dumped me, never even visited. I signed the divorce papers. What did you expect? Oh, no, it wasn't that. It was the prison rap that she couldn't take. She just couldn't stand the disgrace. And that was your doing, counselor, not my doing. She married a plumber. They wound up with a litter of kids. My own kid doesn't even know me. So when I got out, I went to visit her. The plumber was off plumbing someplace, and the kids were all in school. She picked up a poker tried to hit me over the head with it. And I took it away from her and calmed her down. She crawled in the car. I took her to a little spot about 50 miles down the road. Why tell me all this? Because I want to tell you all this. That night, I made a call up the plumber and tell him she was taking a little vacation from him and the kids. And I made her sit down and write me a love note. Asking me to invite her on a second honeymoon. She dated it and signed it. Made her write a lot of dirty words. And I occupied a time for three days. You begin to get the picture, counsellor? I'm getting it. Mm. Good.
1: What he says about her, that he held her up for three days, and that he wrote, he made her write a letter, implies that he sexually assaulted her for three days. Wow. Yeah, And and... It's stuff like that where you just like, ooh, Jesus. Yeah. Well, sometimes,
2: that's more, un- yeah. Yeah, sometimes that's more effective. It's not spelt out. You're not shown. It's that, yeah. the known unknown.
1: Yeah. Exactly right. We don't know exactly what happened, but we know what the gist is. We know exactly. where they're getting at. Yeah, yeah. And
2: we can put those, you know, fill in the gaps and it's all. Oh. And so, yeah, he alludes to a lot of things and um, they can be uh, almost more frightening than Actually, being shown those things,
1: yeah. yeah, and especially like that scene where the daughter thinks she's being followed, mm-hmm. which is really well done.
2: Oh, yes, yeah. so that's my favorite scene of the whole film. I think. Oh, yeah, uh, let me sort of backtrack a little bit. Yeah, this is not long after Sam has assaulted Max at the jetty, after he talks about the juicy uh reference to his daughter, juicy. um, yeah. uh, and how she's getting juicy just like his wife, Ugh. uh. So not long after that, we get the mum and the daughter pulled up in the car. The mum goes to step out of the car for a little bit, leaves the daughter in the car. She's sitting in there, sort of minding her own business. And then this whole sequence, I think, is just incredible. Um, Yeah. Incredible use of uh, camera angles and lots of, like, long lenses. Mm. You know, almost like something out of The Conversation. Oh, that yeah, movie? yeah. Yeah, that's a really good use of long lenses in that one. Um, and then also just lots of really good close-ups, which is also something that Scorsese uses in the 991. Yeah. There's a lot of effective use of close-ups in that one. But, yeah, so we get this sequence of Nancy, the daughter, scared, running away from Max as she leaves the car, running into this little nearby house. All this time, Max is just like this domineering, just... Uh, force of nature basically yeah. like this coming towards her but just walking at a steady pace, not doing anything. Mm. But it really just captures that whole childhood fear and that she's just absolutely terrified of this evil force coming towards yeah. her. And she's just running away, runs into this little um into this house. She thinks it's Max. Uh, that he's just there. And he's going to get her. Runs out. It's actually just like some janitor or something. Some person that works yeah. there. But and she it, freaks
1: out and runs onto the road. She and... runs
2: on But well, she, she runs into Max. Yeah.
1: Uh, that's right. She
2: screams. Runs off into the road. And then. Before running out in front of a car. And then getting hit by the car. Yeah. The whole really sequence. Well done. The whole sequence. I just love it so much. It's just that whole intimidation. That Max has throughout the whole film. Uh, yeah. And that's part of what makes this movie so good. And I'm sure even just in the 991, is exactly the same in terms of just,
1: yeah. he, he's this, you know. He's knip- much more present with the daughter in the 91 version. He
2: is. And that's probably one thing that I think I do like, probably a little bit more about the 91 version. Obviously, I love this scene a lot. Uh, yeah. I think it's, it's just really captures that, as I was saying, that, you know, evil force bearing down upon her. And his whole, inti- yeah. you know, intimidation without actually doing anything, which kind of epitomizes the whole thing that he does throughout the whole movie, where he's, yeah. you know, putting this level of intimidation on, on not just her but the whole family. The whole and family dynamic is
1: breaking down, breaking down. And he's not, it. and he's barely, just, just by him being well, off in the distance. Exactly, he's yeah. very
2: subtly, you know, threatening them.
1: He's there in the bowling alley. Yeah, and. Um, and he's there in the restaurant, or or he's there at the jetty. Yeah, he's walking along the sidewalk. You know, he's he's around. It's sort of it's it is very similar in *Night of the Hunter* how he's hmm. sort of like a force that's seeming to be anywhere at any time. He, he has no problem getting places. Yep, uh, similar in that sense. But in this one, yeah, in this version, I love just Robert Mitchum's whole fashion sense. And his whole oh, yeah, okay. demeanor, yes, and his me too. his personality as an actor really suits that role. Oh my god, it's yeah. it's just perfect. Yeah, um, just oh, it made me like start googling the type of shirts that he's wearing and all that <laughs> kind of thing. Like, I want his hat, you know. <laughs> yeah, but um, but you did mention mm, the '90s
2: version of Nancy, and yeah. I do think that that is probably one thing that the '90s version, I think, has sort of an extra. Oh, yeah. Tick is Julia Lewis. It's oh. just incredible in that movie. Like, I think she actually is somehow showing uh, De Niro up. Like, she's even better than he is. Yeah, like, she's, she's really good. To me, I think, he's the, the star of that movie.
1: Pretty hard to show up De Niro. It's pretty hard, but she does it. She's but she incredible. goes toe to toe with him. Yeah, yeah, she definitely holds her weight in the scenes with him. And you forget, like, but that 91 version opens with her. The yes. movie opens with her like talking about the events that happened to their family. Yeah. That scene like I love where Robert De Niro is like calling her and he's hanging upside down. But he's telling her, like, you gotta you know, that that frustration you feel with your family, with life, with, you know, whatever. You 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 can use that, you know. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't accept it, you don't reject it, you can just use it. Um and he's just manipulating her into you know, saying all the right things that he knows. Like he's so clever and intelligent. Yep. This character, he spent all his years in prison reading and yeah. And the scene that he's got with her, Nancy, right? Um, Nancy. in the auditorium where he's posing as a teacher. Oh my and god! Like, yeah. Ugh. You get to see Robert De Niro kissing young Juliet Lewis on the mouth. Ugh. Mm-hmm. It's a bit gross, but I guess it's meant to be gross. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's meant to be uncomfortable. It yeah.
2: very much is. It very much is, yeah. So yeah, yeah it's um, <laughs> exactly. It's uh Oh man. So yeah, I love yeah. the aspect of her and making her a larger character and that I think is really smart. Mm-hmm. But in saying that, I still think that um I did like, you know, this version of um of Nancy and I uh, like yeah. the, the the younger so she's younger in this than she is in the nineties uh, yeah. version. You know, it's just played differently, basically. And that scene yeah, there, yeah. she's played more like a just a young frightened child.
1: Yeah, and-, and that's part of the limitations is like what they can do in regards to this. Like, we, we've sort of danced around this a bit, but we should talk about it like the Hayes Code.
2: Yeah, true. Yeah. Uh,
1: because Night of the Hunter sort of had to fit in with this sort of like code of conduct. You know, like, you know, we got ratings systems, mm-hmm. and, you know, you've got like the Motion Picture Association of America these days that will sort of, you know, people make a film and they don't always put in what they want to put in for fear of getting a certain rating, because if you get a certain rating, you don't get distribution. Well, back in the, what, between the 1930s and the 1960s, there was the Hayes Code, which was essentially, like, guidelines imposed upon filmmakers to include what, you know, other people thought were, you know, good values or just not to put in things that ...were, you know, um, against what they called this thing, the Hayes Code. So, Cape Fear was instrumental in kind of upending this code, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of what it was presenting and what it did and what it gave audiences.
2: And even um, Night of the Hunter, our, pre- our previous film... Yeah. ...was, uh, you know, instrumental as well and definitely pushed the boundaries... Totally. ...of what was acceptable.
1: Like, we said that this movie almost got an X rating... Yeah. And, you know, by today's standards, it's fairly tame, apart from some of these depictions of or allusions to violence that we already mentioned. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, really interesting that this film is one of the contributing factors in upending that whole system. Yeah. And it's much better for it, though, because even like I know that they couldn't do everything they wanted to do, but what they get away with and what we get in this film is still really effective. Yeah, absolutely. Really powerful. Absolutely.
2: So I talked earlier about how much of this great intimidating force that Max uh, Mitchum was. Mm. I also loved how much Robert Mitchum just has this really great threatening aura in this film. Yeah. Obviously in Night the Hunter, he's also very much a lot of these things. In this as well, I, I just loved his his voice and his smile and... Especially in some scenes like that, when where he was talking with the waitress at the bowling alley, uh, and he asks her, "Oh yeah, what the what the if the ring that she has on her finger meant anything? Obviously, yeah. it was a wedding ring, so it does mean something." And then he goes, does well, does this mean anything?" And puts a twenty dollar note in her hand. Yeah, and it's just this real sleazy, creepy. Oh, it's just unnerving.
0: Here you go.
3: You're kind of fast on your feet, ain't you?
0: No, you have to be around here.
3: That uh, that ring mean anything?
0: Yeah, it means plenty. Does
3: that mean anything?
1: Uh. Yeah, yeah, he's a real piece of work. <laughs> yeah, isn't he? And I mean, Robert Mitchum plays it so well, and and yeah. just. Him, him as an actor as well, he really fascinates me. It seems like at the time, the things that people write about him and the way they spoke about him. I mean, you can hear some really funny stories of him behind the scenes of Night of the Hunter. Mm. Like, Charles Lawton had one take on him. Mm-hmm. But Charles Lawton was a bisexual dude. He might have been, you know, keen on Robert Mitchum a bit. Sure. That's the he, other thing, too. Yeah. I, I
2: didn't mention that, like, despite all his, you know... um, Creepiness and unnervingness and, you know, he's actually quite a handsome man. Oh, very. He's, he's good to go. Exactly.
1: And he's charming and he's and well-spoken. Yes,
2: exactly. So he can play both sides so well. That's part yeah. of what almost makes him so, so unnerving is yeah. because he can look so, as you said, charming.
1: And he's had a vast range of roles. You know, he's done westerns and war films and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And these roles are his most famous, where he's playing these types of characters. And for good reason, that sort of blend, like, you know, we've mentioned it a bunch of times, but, you know, charming Mm -hmm. and sort of intimidating Mm -hmm. and um, creepy. And, yeah, yeah, that whole mishmash of all those things together. He plays it really well. Um, One of the things I found in, like, researching this movie... Mm -hmm. was this sort of archived article about him. It was called, like, The Many Moods of Robert Mitchum. And it was really interesting. And just the type of life that he had, you know, some hardships growing up, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it was, like, not too dissimilar to the type of article you would see today when, you know, talking about actors, like, you know, the the bad boy of Hollywood, the complex, misunderstood, you know, um, the way that they might talk about, like, Johnny Depp. Yeah, yeah. uh, you know, he's a a different type of dude, of course There's all things to say about him But um, the article was, you know, portraying him as, you know, complex, mysterious, bad boy of Hollywood You know, like one of the clips I grabbed was, you know, he can sound like a scholar one minute A hoodlum the next Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's a really interesting read And one of the things that they talk about is that he was arrested for vagrancy in... The same part of town where they filmed the boat sequence in the, you know, like the Savannah kind of thing. Oh, wow. And vagrancy is something that comes up in Cape Fear, the 1962 version. Yeah. Because it's one of the crimes that the detective hired by Sam Bowden is thinking, all right, we can get him for lewd vagrancy.
2: Well, I see. I mentioned in the top... Yeah. friends at the police station and asked, you know, uh, was trying to get the help to try and pin something on him. And then, yeah, he obviously resorts to hiring, they don't obviously, they can't do anything. Yeah. He hasn't done anything wrong. So, he got as a private detective and then, yeah, the private detective is like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe you can uh, put lewd, fra- uh, fa- was it lewd vagrancy? Lewd vagrancy, yeah, not and just I'd any nev- old vagrancy. And I'd never heard of that before I, I think in, in my notes i literally was like a lewd fragrancy question mark like what is yeah. this uh so yeah. it's so funny that he actually got done for for that exact yeah. crime uh in the and around the similar location as well it's crazy yeah
1: and, and i mean vagrancy were these really uh, after researching it like this is what i found out right it's like it's these sort of really vague laws Um, Like, a vagrant could be, like, a homeless person. Okay. Or a vagrant could be, like, a van full of hippies that just showed up in town and is playing a drum circle in the main street.
2: So, it's, like, undesirables.
1: Kind of, yeah. Right. And it was a law that allowed people to kind of arrest you before you had even committed a crime. It was a minority (laughs) report. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Wow. And it's apparently something that Robert Mitchum was arrested for. So, he might have been, like, you know, smoking pot. Um, as a teenager and hanging out and just being maybe a bit of a local degenerate. Yeah. And he got picked up for lewd, for not lewd, but just for vagrancy. And apparently he was popped on a chain gang that he escaped from. Wow. Um, so, I really recommend this article, The Many Moods of Robert Mitchum. I'll include a link to it in our episode description. Oh, I'm going
2: to read this myself. Yeah. yeah and thank it's, you. um,
1: It's just really interesting. It has, has all these nice, like, interesting kind of points that it mentions about him um and just like his perspective or his perceived persona or percep- perspective on well, seeing and all that. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. There's a lot of things I read about him um, in terms of yeah you know and so you know and some of them were conflicting in terms of how actually Absolutely. things things yes. actually happened. Um yeah. but yeah he definitely seems like a very interesting character. You mentioned pot smoking, he seemed like he was very prevalent uh, pot smoker oh. not, not just in his childhood but for the rest of his life just the uh, shit he
1: got up to if, if you just look up the shit just google this the shit Robert Mitchum got up to on on the set of Night of the Hunter and you'll yeah. it'll, it's hilarious yeah, you know, right, yeah but that's why it's so interesting that Charles Lawton would come out saying he was a, you know soft spoken guy and he really was you know taken with him quite a bit mm-hmm. and I think that is uh, you know one of the things in the article that one of the lines from it that I thought was great that I kind of highlighted was just um, that they referred to him and his philosophy as like bitter and cynical and, you know, a veneer of toughness which armors a sensitive nonconformist, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Whose psychic wounds still ache. It's like, oh, okay. Um, quite like the puff piece on him as that, this- that sounds like Mysterious it. Yeah. bad boy. But it would fit in with these different accounts you've got of him, yeah, being you know quite rough around the edges at times, but then also capable of, um, you know, quite a bit of sensitivity as well. Oh, um, well, yeah, so he yeah, well, was fascinated by him as an actor, yeah.
2: And I think in the acting world, from from what I've uh, read, and obviously limited, and I was, I haven't read this, but uh, the small amount I have read is it sounds like he was a bit of respected, but then also disliked by certain people as well because yeah. he uh, his attitude was less he took acting uh it's funny because he took acting obviously seriously but then he didn't at the same time yeah he kind of approached it very like oh you know
1: anyone can be an actor kind of thing like you just like you just, you just be
2: you know you was you just yeah. you know uh you just show up and just do it and uh and people kind of you know were justifiably a little upset by his <laughs> dismissal of their craft yeah. but then yeah at the same time he also was respected by people like obviously Kate Fear Gregory Peck was like yeah we need to get him and really put in the work what I heard was there's multiple stories of why he got it like one because he offered him the part and then Brough Mitchum saw the potential in the part. Yeah. Uh, but then also the other one was I heard was he bought him a carton of bourbon and <laughs> Robert Mitchum was like, all right, fine, I'll do it. The other person they considered was Marlon Brando yeah. for the role at first, but then literally once Robert Mitchum came onto the scene, Gregory Peck was just
1: like, no, Robert Mitchum, yeah. he, he's the guy. I couldn't imagine Marlon Brando doing this as well. And Marlon Brando, funnily enough, is one of the people they compare him to yeah, in terms right. of you know his range His ability as an actor. And, you know, like, Marlon Brando was sort of one of the first actors doing that whole method sort of thing. Yes. So, like, I've referenced this before. And, like, you watch Streetcar Named Desire and his acting style stands above the others in that film, Mm -hmm. like, by Miles. And it's kind of same for this film. You can see that Robert Mitchum is doing something different than what Gregory Peck is doing. Yeah. And his style of acting stands out against what... Yeah, the others are doing. Yeah, totally, yeah.
2: totally. Yeah, but at the same time, there's a few moments, but for the most part, I don't think the other performances in this are too melodramatic.
1: No, not at really. uh,
2: Yes, he does stand above the rest, but uh, I thought Gregory Peck was fantastic in it too.
1: Me too. But and Gregory Peck is doing the whole thing like, now look here, Buster. You know, I'm gonna. Yes. I'm gonna knock you. Uh, um, whereas Robert Mitchum is playing like a complete sociopath. Yes, totally, um, totally. But no, I, that article, though, is a good read in terms of if you want to know more about Robert Mitchum, especially his, the perception of him. The article was written in uh, 1962, just after Cape Fear came out. So oh, it, wow. So, it was like a promotional piece for him that references this whole being arrested for vagrancy, being on a, chor- a Georgia road gang, you know, and escaping and all that sort of fun stuff. But I thought that was really interesting, yeah.
2: Yeah, I thank you for bringing that up. And yeah, well, um, you're welcome. Please, please make sure you put that in the uh, in the notes, because yeah, we'll, we'll uh, I I also
1: it. will be checking that out. One of my favourite scenes is that builds that real tension is when Gregory Peck's character, you know, like you were saying, he concocts this scheme to appear as if he is flying to Atlanta mm-hmm. to kind of try to um, get Robert Mitchum to follow him, find out whether he's boarded the plane or not, and then track him down. Yeah. But the daughter. And the wife are on this boat Mm -hmm. and it's that scene where somebody might be coming. And the whole film just, it just screeches to a halt and you just live in this tense moment, which I really loved.
0: It's just a log bumping. No, not that. Listen. It's a boat. There are bound to be boats. I
3: didn't hear any last night. It's coming
2: closer. I also really love that scene. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Definitely one of those moments in this movie that... Yeah. I mean, we talked before about Night of the Hunter... And not the hunter having this great film noir expressionist uh, use of uh, lighting and shadows in particular. This is a uh, this is one of those shots in this movie that does
1: yeah. very much
2: that oh, very yeah. well.
1: That's another thing I loved about this movie too, like that that black and white and just yeah, mm-hmm. what's lurking back there in the shadows? Yeah, exactly.
2: So we get this, what is it so that you, as you said, there's the mum and the daughter. They're both uh, alone on the boat. Tensions high. They're a little concerned. He could be in around any corner, mm-hmm. as we so. As we hear we hear the sounds of the uh, of a boat arriving. Yeah, uh, it's like far away. Yeah, and, one of,
1: and the daughter is like, "Wait, do you hear that? You know, yeah. something's coming." And you don't, the audience, you don't hear it yet. But then, it, the next few moments pass, and you do hear something coming. Yeah, it's really well done,
2: isn't it? Yeah, and really then there's really tense. Uh, slivers of light flashing across Peggy's face yeah. uh, as she's terrified. Worrying what the sound is, and then you get this misdirect, and it's just uh, Sam, her husband, and the cops. Yeah, it's almost like a jump scare, you know, in a horror movie, and that it's this beautiful little moment of just really gets you, the heart moving, you get really intense, and then it's just it's just the everything's all it's all good. But you know, so many, think of so many other horror, great horror movies, you know, like yeah. Alien or something, where there's so many of those in Alien where it is. There's that force, the, the the you know the alien out there, mm-hmm. and he could come at any moment. And you get this tension, tension building, 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 and then it's this the moment of like release or whatever. Yeah. It's this moment of like, oh, ah, oh, no, no, it's not. And it's one of those little great little moments where it's
1: which was an interesting choice though, because then later in the film when he is when you find out he is like arriving by a boat and he, Max Cady hops out of the boat to swim quietly through mm-hmm. the water. It, the, like, it's following his perspective from that point, which I thought was an interesting choice. Yeah, true. Good point. Um, yeah. because, but, but I'm glad that they gave us that scene beforehand from the other side of it. Like, mm-hmm. what could be out there? Because that's just one of those universal fears... That's so relatable for any audience. Oh, my God. Yeah. Just that fear of, you know, some... It reminded me of, like, It Follows, you know. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I can see that. It's really... I don't know. It's just... Uh, it's it's funny, like, seeing those links here and there between, you know, some of my favorite movies later down the line and those yeah. horror conventions that they're using.
2: We, exactly. We talked about it with Night of the Hunter uh, and Cave Fear is 100%. Yeah. Both of them just very
1: influential films. Ah, oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. And, I mean, and then we're sort of moving into the end of the film on this one. We kind of are, yeah. So, we,
2: obviously, um, this is sort of the final confrontation. Max has, as you said, gone out of these little boats and he's making his way up the river yeah. sneakily. He takes yeah. that stupid cop, that stupid cop that <laughs> slaps his face because of a mosquito. Oh, God,
1: yeah. And it's like, oh, all right, mate, and you deserve to get strangled. And you know, what? you know what? You also get Robert Mitchell with his shirt off. And then exactly, we're talking about it forward. The whole
2: good-looking man. He's uh, here. He is with his shirt off. He's uh, like nineteen
1: fifties hot too. You didn't have <laughs> exactly. to be like did, yes. tons of muscles. You just had to have like a flat kind of gut, and you know, like a some you know reasonably sized chest. But um, and that and that's one of the things too. I think you popped in the notes like that was one of the things that was not in line with this Hayes code that we referenced. Like this code of conduct. They had a problem with the word rape. They had a problem with the allusions to violence mm-hmm. and they had a problem with Robert Mitchum's bare chest. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like some weird Elvis shaking his hips kind of shit. Yeah, good point. You know, people turned on by his bare chest. Like, oh, you can't show your bare chest. <laughs> um, how far, you know, things have come. But funny that that was one of the things they objected to. Oh, my God. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but so you're then- right. He's, he's slaps a mosquito on his phase and he... That's what what does him and he gets strangled, yeah. Um,
2: And then, yeah, then we get um, Max sneaking onto the boat. Mm. There's a bit of a misdirect so he obviously gets on the boat and the husband, who's been, obviously not gone to Atlanta and here he is, Sam's actually there to to protect the the family and he uh, goes onto the boat and um, It's not the wife he's after. Exactly, it's the daughter. Yeah. 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 But it is a very confrontational scene between the two of them and yeah
1: when they're like dancing not dancing sorry that's the wrong word but they're skirting around this like a ping pong table yes it's a very intense moment and it's like at any moment he's gonna flip that thing over and yeah Mm -hmm. he's gonna get on
2: yeah and then yeah then he goes off to where the daughter is at and uh, she has like a what do you call them like when you stoke the fire like a little uh maybe like a poker yeah, yep. she's got one of those, and he very easily disarms her. But again, going back to what I said before with that original scene, like she's just like intimidated by him. Yeah, he's this you know, he's this a bully mo- man he's a monster. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so she just
1: very easily like just kind of gives up. And same thing, like Night of the Hunter, like he, like he's like the Terminator. He's tracked him down. Yeah, you know. Ah, it's exactly. so Exactly, these so
2: films, good. like, it's a very good pairing, actually. I'm very, oh, very cool. impressed. I think, yeah. I think it, this would actually make a very good uh, double feature. Oh, completely.
1: Could you imagine both back-to-back on the big screen? I'd love oh, yeah. to be able to do that one day. Oh, my God, me
2: too. And then, yes, yeah, so then we have uh, Sam, his uh, wife, Peggy, goes, you need to go and protect our daughter, Nancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all been a ruse. He quickly runs off, gets there in time before uh, anything terrible happens. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, then you have a whole scuffle, or get into a fight, and then Max arms himself with his club, or is it piece of wood with a bit of a, like a nail through oh, the yeah. it. It's uh, a decent piece of wood. It sure is. And so, and then Sam has lost his pistol in the you know, in the little bush there. And so we have this moment of yeah Max sort of stalking Sam as he's trying to retrieve his gun. And I really love the little ending where mm. obviously I'm going to totally spoil. I'm spoiling everything here. So full spoilers. We, yeah. Full spoilers in on this one. But we get there's that, that final climatic ending where Sam reaches for the gun just as Max tries to strike him with the uh, club. Yeah. And you think for a moment that, oh, shit, maybe, Sam, maybe Max has got him. Maybe Sam's out. Yeah. And uh, he just reaches the gun, shoots Max. Yeah. Well, sorry, not doesn't shoot Max, actually. Take that back. Sorry, sorry. He shoots him once, but doesn't kill him. Yeah. And then uh has this great little speech at the end. We're not going to kill you. Yeah. We're going to make you suffer. You know, we're going to take good, take-, take good care of good you. Good care of yeah. you, You know, it would be letting you off easy. We won't let you rather rot in prison
1: for your whole life. Yeah. The justice system will prevail. Yeah. But, you know, Sam, he's going to lose his bar license, or whatever you call it. But he's going to lose his uh, career because mm-hmm. they found out Max Katie had a lawyer too, and they they knew that he had hired goons to to get him. How, how good, though, is that scene where Robert Mitchum beats up the goons that were there to beat him up uh, underneath, yeah. like, the boardwalk or something? Yeah, yeah. And even in the 91 version, that scene's awesome as well. Yes, There's of course, counselor. in the 91 <laughs> version, he's, he's actually there yeah. watching. Yeah, he gets yeah. A, yeah. That's right, yeah. Oh, and it's just the chains and everything. Yeah. So good. Uh, but I love the... I was
2: surprised a little bit... By the anti-deaf so the way I read it, uh, mm. obviously, it's obviously all about the justice system and uh, maybe the justice system isn't completely broken or whatever yeah. or justice was eventually served in the end. I so the way I read it was a little bit of a anti-deaf sentence message.
1: yeah, totally. and and for me, it was also just like, you know the hero moment, yes, where the the there's a nice little bow. On the end of the film, where but the justice system did prevail. Yes, but and then also it, and we like are going to abide by it. Yeah,
2: but then like a lot of movies, at least like a lot of you know modern action movies, for example, yeah. would have not had that and would have had the hero killing killing the villain, yeah, he'd be and dead by the that end. would have been that would have been it. That would
1: have been pretty good too.
2: Yeah, but I kind of like that they didn't do that. I liked that. Yeah, he disarmed him and then went. You know what? No, right in jail. Yeah it would be better if you roll away your whole life in, in prison than yeah. uh, take an easy way out.
1: Whereas the 90s one, you've got Robert De Niro drowning on a boat speaking in tongues. Yes. Which was fun. Yes. Well, that's <laughs> and, the other um, thing too. The 90s yeah. one has
2: a lot more uh, religious themes. Um, yeah. there's a, he's De Niro's kind of painted more as a sort of demonic-like... Hmm. Satan character, like you talked about the scene with um, him kissing Nancy. It's very much him, kind of persuading her, like she's Eve in the Garden of Eden.
1: Oh, okay, I like that. Yeah, yeah. temptation, exactly. Sin, sinful yeah. behavior. So thumb in the mouth. Ugh.
2: Exactly. So yeah. So he's very, he's very that kind of. It's a very. It's an interesting take. Um, yeah. Again, I I'm of two minds of which one's better, but I was surprised how much. I really like this version and I actually kind of, I think it comes down to, I really like Gregory Peck as, okay. the, um, yeah. as a, a Sam Bowden. I think he works a lot more. He makes more sense to me as this lawyer type than, um, Nick, Nolte, than yeah. Nick Nolte does in the 90s version for me.
1: No, that's, that's cool. Yeah. Greg Not Peck. to say
2: I don't like Nick Nolte and things, but it just, it just didn't work as much for me in that in that role.
1: Uh, the one thing that I liked was that Nick Nolte, his character, like I said before, he had something to own up to and to confess to. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in the 90s one, he was having an affair with his secretary that Max Cady rapes and, and mm-hmm. assaults. Whereas I don't think that was happening in the 62 version. No. So, there's, there's more of a grey area um, with the 90s one. But... But yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. I mean, it's Greg Peck; it's old Greg. It is. So um, it is, and I don't know. He's I think, good I think, on, as I he's said, awesome be- on screen.
2: He is 100, percent yeah. And yeah. That, that's it for me. That works. And I said before, just that whole visual representation of the whole, you know, yeah. beware the fighting monsters. You yourself don't become the monster.
1: Ah, uh, yes. That whole idea. Yes, I think
2: that uh, it works extra for me with um, with this Sam Bowden because totally. he comes from such a zero to
1: 100 almost he's, he's more of a pure character that does get corrupted exactly yeah in yeah wanting to protect his family no I get you I like that yeah so that's I don't know
2: for me that worked just a bit more as a, I think the metaphor worked a bit stronger than totally. this than it did in the yeah. but then also there's lots of things like that noise one
1: so me too yeah. I love that shot of Robert de Niro like with a cigar with all those fireworks behind him you know mm-hmm. all that kind of thing Good stuff. You know, both of them are really awesome. I mean, it's a Martin Scorsese remake, so it is. Yes, um, you gotta love it. And yeah, I mean, that's that's Cape Fear. It is Cape Fear. You guys can say anything you want
2: to touch on before we uh, wrap it up.
1: No, I reckon I'm good.
2: Okay, I was going to say one quick thing. Yeah, for many people, uh, especially of our age, nineties and two thousands, you know, TV watchers. uh, Oh yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) The uh, I always think of when I think of Cape Fear. I think of The Simpsons and the Sarge Bob episode. Yeah. It's, it's, so it's kind of funny. When you ever yeah. watch, you watch Cape Fear, like, you know, especially the 90s version, but uh, it's just, yeah, it just how funny. That no, it's are.
1: actually German. It's the Bart. The. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I yeah, mean, when so that's like, one thing. This movie had didn't have enough rakes in it. Not, not enough rakes in the face. That's one of the best jokes ever. Just the, uh, uh. And uh, yeah, like him attached to the car. Oh, that's that's one of the best Simpsons episode ever. Isn't it? It's I love when Homer good. busts in to Bart's room like, Hey Bart, I'm going to cut you a slice of pizza. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey Bart, you want to see my chainsaw and hockey mask? <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, right. It's the, the psychopath killer thing. Yes. <laughs> and he tricks Sideshow Bob and he stalls Sideshow Bob by daring him to sing the entire HMAS pinafore score. Right. song. Yeah, no, it's awesome. You're right, though. Like, I think I know, like, my first exposure would be The Simpsons. I Yeah, 100%. A yeah. Lose, yeah, as as a kid, that was my point of reference to yeah. Cape Fear. Yeah. And
2: it wasn't until I watched the movie years later and I was like, oh, that's what that was oh, about. Yeah, and yeah. then, you know, and again, I just watching this may remind me of, yeah. of The Simpsons again. And it comes full again.
1: circle because the love and hate that we see on Sideshow Bob, well, L-U-V and H-A, little you know symbol above the a yes. he's only got four fingers so but yeah that 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 is referenced from of course night of the hunter is the yeah love and hate on the knuckles yeah, yeah. exactly so full circle uh, which is awesome but no i got that's pretty much all good for me on cape fear man awesome dude all right well
2: feel free to hit us up on social media at look who's podcasting and or send us an email at look who's podcasting at gmail.com
1: yep awesome and have us. a good one
2: folks Bye.
3: What a fellowship, what a joy divine, Leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, Leaning on the everlasting arms.